The one-two again. Inside corner. The Royals, 2015 World Champions. This is an absolute nightmare on, uh, I think it was Sunday night. Okay. And uh, I had to pick some stuff up at the mall. And I don't know the name of the place, but uh, the first lady, she told me that there was a sale at Yankee Doodle Candle or... Yeah, Yankee Candle. Yankee Candle or something. And she said that... There's a few people on the Christmas list that she wanted to get get them out of the way. Specific scents for oh, you know, or whatever. And the deal was great, and the coupon is here. She was away in Florida, actually. Was it like buy two get two free? Some something? bullshit, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not even thinking of the date or anything like that. And I get to the mall, and I get. I find the stuff. It takes a FaceTime or two to the first lady. That's a, that is maybe the most underrated thing about FaceTime. You're in a store. Uh-huh. You don't know what you're supposed to buy. You just turn the camera on. You just say, hey, what one is it here? Okay. You know? So anyway, we get that done. And it's raining a bit on the way home. And I'm still not even thinking. And get out of the car. Oh, I know where this is going. Can't even <laughs> hold the candles. I just keep dropping them, dropping them. Because, uh-huh. I mean, in the cold November rain, it is almost impossible to hold a candle. Yeah. Eddie Trunk would have picked up on that way faster. And I, I just I couldn't get them in the house. Gotcha. So I had to wait till the next day when I decided was just leave them where they lie, come back the next day. Right. You know, and get them in. It was much easier to hold them the next day when there was no rain. Right. Yeah. Uh, season five, episode thirty-five of the Sportscasters. It's uh, of course November fifth, two thousand fifteen, uh, and it's an interesting show today, where one of our guests is Matt Yoder, who broke news on the podcast when we did the interview, but probably has since. Publish that news, oh, so okay. it's no longer breaking news on this podcast. Gotcha. And our other g- guest, Tim Graham, has been the man breaking most of the news in the Pat Kane case right. since August, and uh, he's going to join us to talk about that, uh, dealing with people on Twitter, and maybe we'll get a few Bills things in uh, with Tim as well, but I definitely wanted... I reached out this morning and, and said, Tim, I, I, I got to put the bat light on. You know, <laughs> I need you today. We got to – I got to know how to feel about Kane. Okay. You know, and I want to know what you know and what you think. So we're going to talk to Tim about that, and we're going to talk to Matt Yoder. Now, the thing about Matt, I don't want to scare anyone away. Uh, it's, he's probably the only person on the internet uh, – Probably the second most popular Saints fan on the internet besides me. 
Oh, okay. So there is a bit of uh, Saints geeking out, Saints talk, Breeze talk. Uh, but we did that kind of – we did all this – all the Grantland stuff. And I'm going to do a one last thing about Grantland sort of. Um, it's obviously Grantland shut down yeah, this week. Yeah, yeah. You know? And Grantland is such a – we'll talk about it uh, at the end. I won't get into it now. I'll talk about it one last thing. But we talk all about what happened there, why did it shut down, and and uh, I was also curious, like, what's a big hit at Awful Announcing? Like, you figure if ESPN.com has a huge cowboy story, mm-hmm. that's probably huge. You know that's page views if you're ESPN. Sure. You know? what? What is a page view at? What's a guaranteed page you for a site like Awful Announcing, you know? I didn't know, so I asked, and he tells us. Cool. So it's a good, it's a good interview. It's long, but we'll put it second. So if you're not into it, you can bail. <laughs> um, we'll do the book club. And uh, like I said, I know I'll be talking about Grantland, um, what it meant to this podcast. Um, and also I wanted to pay tribute to some of our friends from there. Uh, on the show as well. So we'll do that during that as well. But for now, we'll get started with one last thing. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. (laughs) This is the funnest night ever. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. The Kansas City Royals are the uh, 2015 World Series champions. And Don mentioned it last year. The infancy of the sportscasters. Right. Uh, a theme was the Royals. based on who the guests were, really. Sure. Uh, when will the Royals be champions? And actually, Joe Piznanski... Uh, who was the sixth guest ever on the show and was one of the reasons why the Royals were a topic Mm -hmm. in that early stage because he spent a bulk of his career writing about the Royals for the Kansas City Star, I think is the name of the paper there. Yeah, I feel like they're the unofficial team of the sportscasters. Yeah, and um, he actually wrote a column in 2011, the same year that we debuted, saying that the Royals would win the World Series in 2015. Oh, okay. Uh, So it was fun to watch, and I did watch, because of that, the evolution of the Royals. Mm -hmm. You know, from a team getting close uh, to a team that broke through but missed it by 90 feet last year, right? People probably don't forget, but... They were 90 feet away from tying Game 7 of the World Series last year, right? And those that can go two ways. You could get that close and never get anywhere near that again, right? Or you just use that and you bust the door down the next year, and that's what they did. And they were a great champion. But it was an interesting World Series, and I want to start with this. How much of it did you watch? Not much at all. For some reason, I had I watched more of the, the round before that. Uh I don't know what happened. I don't know. I know a couple of the games went to the final innings, but it seemed like every time I flipped it on, the games were over. But 
Uh, no, I didn't catch much of it. For a World Series that was five games, it was a great five-gamer. Yeah, I saw you arguing that on Twitter with someone that thought it was pretty forgettable. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think so. I mean, you got game one, you have a... Uh, that was like 14 innings, right? Yeah, and it includes a, you know, 440-foot bomb to center field by Alex Gordon to tie it in the bottom of the ninth off a closer that had been unhittable for about five months at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, Familia, who was in some tough spots, blew three saves in the World Series and I don't want to get on Familia as much as I just want to make the point that the longer you watch baseball, the more you realize how great Mariano Rivera was. And how, sure, you, there's a couple that he didn't get to the house. The 97 the against Cardinal, the Indians. Uh, I was thinking Diamondbacks. That was 2001. Okay, right. So there's those two. Uh, and, and one in the Red Sox series uh, where they came back. That he blew game four with the stolen base. But man, for as many playoff games and as many saves as he needed in the playoffs, we can think of three. Right. Maybe we missed one. This guy, Familia, who's been as good as anyone, blew three in the same series. Why do you think that is? Uh, Well, one. I mean, not. I mean, one is like you're giving him a blown save because the second baseman booted the ball into the... Okay, right. You know, pretty much anything you do when you pitch in the ninth, if you don't win, is a blown blown save. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of silly. But uh, Cousin Sal on the Bill Simmons podcast, when asked before the series what he was worried most about, said Familia on the bigger stage in Hmm. game one. And game one was the the blown save where he came in, clean inning... It's his, and uh, and he couldn't get it in there because Gordon hits the home run. A blast of a home run to center field, too. We did the awesome spot with Jeff Passan last week. Yep. So grateful to him to do that after game two. And pretty much everything he said about the series going forward, uh, you didn't need to watch after you heard Passan on this show, really, because uh, he, he had it pretty lined up, what would happen. And that was, uh, you know... Syndergaard would need to pitch the game of his life uh, in game four to give them Matt's hope, and he probably did. And then in game five, uh, Matt, who's like the youngest of the Mets' core, uh, really pitched well. They didn't finish that game. They led like 80% of this World Series. Hmm. You know, for a team that lost, they had a lead in four of the five games, I think. So... And now, so now the big thing, though, can they keep it together? I think the that's Mets. A, no, 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 the Royals. Well, I don't know because there was some interesting talk that maybe the Cueto trade was a indication that maybe they were going all in a little bit this year. That some of the core is going to start to come up. I mean, I doubt they're a franchise that's going to be able to keep Gordon and Hosmer and Mustak. It's like. I don't know if they keep everyone, right? But they might be a good enough organization to keep the right guys and keep building around them and and be a Oakland type of team that always seems to be in the hunt or right, in the right. playoffs, you know? Uh, or Tampa has been like that recently. Uh, Minnesota in the past was like that, where they're not spending the most money, but... 
they're getting a team together that's a playoff team all the time. We'll see about them. And we have people to ask about that. Did you see the drama with Harvey? No. Okay, so this is where I wish. I think I heard about it. This was one of the most amazing World Series scenes. So it's game five, obviously. It's in City Field. The Mets need to win to stay alive. Everyone listening is like, I can't believe he's got it. <laughs> uh, Harvey pitches eight innings of dominance. Okay. I mean, dominance. Just mowing guys over, unhittable. The crowd is chanting, Harvey, Harvey, Harvey. Scene plays out in the in between the eighth and the or in in between the bottom of the eighth and the top of the ninth, where the pitching coach comes over to Harvey, says something. Harvey says no way. Says something again. Harvey says no way. Gets up, walks over to Collins, and you can hear him say, "There's no damn way I'm coming out of this game." Mm-hmm. So they were going to take Harvey out and uh, put Familia in. With the clean start to wasn't, the inning. Wasn't the explanation like they wanted to save him if they needed him or something like no, that? No. Okay. No, no. The explanation was that the explanation from the manager was that his gut was to bring Familia in. Okay. But he looked into the player's eyes and he's learned over the years sometimes you got to trust the players. And, and there's just no way he could have taken him out. I mean, the whole time the Mets are ba- uh, the Mets are batting, the crowd is chanting, "We want Harvey." Oh yeah, you know, and Harvey wants to come in, and he comes in, and this is where maybe you can say a mistake was made. He's so jacked up, you can tell he's overthrowing, and he walks Kane okay. to start the inning. And Verducci made the point on the broadcast that Harvey shouldn't pitch one pitch out of the stretch you bring him in if you can get the outs fine so batter to batter essentially right you let a guy on we're gonna bring the closer in and uh, unfortunately they let him pitch to Hosmer who hits the double um to bring it to one run and then Hosmer makes uh an interesting decision to break the home on a ball that probably would have caused him to be out uh, with a good throw, but the throw is bad, and, and that's why you run sometimes. Is this the good base running versus bad throw yes. argument? Yeah. You know, was it good base running or was it bad base running, but the guy threw a bad throw? Passon made the argument that it's great base running because Harvey or uh, Hosmer knows that it's a bad first baseman out there, mm. and he's going to make – uh, put the pressure on him. Doesn't aggressive base running create bad throws? Yes. Yeah. So, little ball. Uh, so it was a great World Series. Uh, I love, I love the baseball playoffs. I couldn't imagine, um, not watching the World Series. Uh, just, just something about, just hearing it, like hearing someone say the World Series. Yeah. There's like a romance to it, and. Uh, I'll miss baseball, but it won't be gone long, obviously. Uh, but I will miss October baseball, um, and that's that. On uh, what was a pretty good baseball season, I thought. Uh, the Yankees made the playoffs. The Cubs made the playoffs. Uh, the Royals continued their story. The Pirates continued their story. You know, the Cardinals were the best team again. Uh, the Dodgers and all the money they spent got to the playoffs. 
there was a lot of really great pitching. Uh, characters in the game like Zach Greinke uh, probably is going to win the Cy Young. Uh, it was a good season. And I look forward to next year. Number two. I told you you might be a bust. Oh, who's that? Connor McDavid. <laughs> oh, poor kid. <laughs> Connor McDavid injured his upper body and is out for the team is describing months. Have they officially said they, broken clav- right? they have I, officially I, confirmed clavicle? I thought so. It was one of those ones where you look at it and say, oh, shit, he broke his collarbone. Because he's holding his arm. You could just tell the way. Yeah, ESPN said one day ago, uh, out for an indefinite period with broken collarbone. Yeah, because the thing with collarbones is sometimes you need to have them operated on, sometimes you don't. The good thing about collarbones is, like, after a week, you're really not restricted from anything but taking hits. Right. So kind of right away, Connor McDavid can start wheeling around, and and as soon as he can take a hit, he can jump back on the ice and be Connor McDavid. It's not like a, a leg injury where you might put ten pounds on, you got to work off after right, being out right. the months or something. So, but what a bummer! I mean, I seriously, what a bummer! I mean, I was all about looking forward to Michael McDavid, Michael McDavid all year, and just seeing side by side. In different leagues and on different teams at different stages in their development as teams, but so looking forward to watching this guy. You know, and this is uh, Bob McKenzie made the points the third November in a row he had an injury. Uh, last November he broke his hand. Remember when he got in the fight? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and then November before he sort of had a misdiagnosed thumb injury, uh, where he had a cast on for like a day and then had it taken off. Uh, but the ironic thing, and I don't want to kind of pile on McDavid and I'm sure you haven't seen it but Showtime has a show called 60 Minute Sports. No, I saw your tweet about this. Uh, you talked about him. Yeah, and Connor there's a, a feature on Connor McDavid and you've seen Real Sports, right? Yes. Same show. Okay. You know, so the pieces are constructed. If you've even seen Outside six, the lines, if you've seen 60 like Minutes and you've seen them do a show on uh, a segment on sports. Right. Same thing. Man, does this kid just void of personality. Yeah. I mean, he... And it's not just the cliches, because they all do that, and I wouldn't hold that against him. That was almost kind of their thing, right? Like, Eichel was a little more flashy, a little more uh, outspoken, and Connor McDavid is the clean-cut all... Well, I was going to say all-American. His mother... All-Canadian boy. His mother was more compelling in the piece than he was. Yeah. You know, if it was wrestling, I mean, he he couldn't he wouldn't be able to draw a dollar. Was Gretzky knocked for that a little bit early in his career? Was because he was kind of real straight laced too, right? Uh yeah, probably. And that is the other part of it. I mean, he's eighteen, sure, or nineteen, right. or whatever. I mean, there's plenty of time to come out of his shell. But you look at Eichel, and you you think back to Crosby. I remember when Crosby was on Leno. I think it was Leno. Uh, right away, uh, before he started his rookie year, just seconds into it, and he's shooting pucks into a washing machine, and oh yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, joking around, and and the personality was there. And That's cool. I wonder how that plays. You know what? I I like that. You like that. I bet you most younger people like that. I bet you some of the NHL vets that stuff rubs the wrong way, which is why em- not empty, but like kind of gestures that 
are not totally sincere, like Eichel not wearing his number until he makes the team. Like, okay, that's cute, but if you really didn't make the team, it would be shocking. You'd be devastated. Like, uh, there's a no-brainer that you're going to make the team. So I think that stuff plays well. I'm not sure how much it means. And I would say the same with the reverse. Like, if veterans don't like cutesy things like that, I don't know. Who cares? It'll just be interesting to see as someone who's obviously going to be the face of the league for 15 or 20 years now. If he can, if he's going to be able to come out of this shell because yeah. he's shy. I want to say Tony Hawk was a little bit like that too when he kind of broke into the skateboarding scene. He was a little bit quiet and like little kind of clean cut looking for a skateboarder. And the interesting thing I wanted to add about it is one of the advantages they say for superstars like McDavid to playing in the OHL is you're a professional essentially. So you get to start early with okay. things like commercials and yeah. endorsements and these kinds of things that you would think would help him get out of his shell. And he's been in the OHL since he's 15. Did, he played three seasons there. Now but, when you watch him, is it like you see him working? Like you see him thinking too much? Like is it him really trying not to trip on his words or saying no it's just shouldn't. flat out just he's just boring yeah well maybe then he's just a, maybe he's a hockey machine like that maybe that's all and he does say like things like i just want to play hockey or right right you know i want my game to do the talking and yeah. i respect things like that he's been great i respect it and he's awesome but like i said there's going to be a time where crosby and ovechkin are going to step back and the idea is going to be that Eichel and McDavid are going to step forward. And is McDavid the guy? We Those guys know. are so the opposite. People might say that Crosby whines too much or talks too much. But, I mean, he talks. He speaks his mind. Like, his interviews aren't boring. Uh, I used to love Michael Pekka because of that. He would come right out and say, like, oh, I can't stand Eric Yeah, Lindros I think the or... whining thing for Crosby is so unfair. First of all, he's the captain of the team. So he has to be the one. To go to the refs sure, yeah, yeah. every time to make a complaint. And it was maybe more fair when he was 18. Yeah, right, yeah. You know what yeah, I, I don't mean? think you hear that as much anymore. Certainly something he's grown out yeah, I don't of. Think you hear but, that much. Uh, last thing on hockey real quick. Uh, we sort of alluded to it. Uh, officially here in Western New York, Patrick Kane uh, will not face any charges for yeah. uh, the allegations of rape. And we're going to talk about it with Tim Graham. Uh, Don, you won't be here for that. So I want to ask you, how has this changed or not changed your perception on who or what Patrick Kane uh, is or represents or means to you as a fan? I think since it didn't go to trial, since there was no settlement, since he wasn't found guilty, I don't think it's going to change my thoughts on him much. Um Maybe I thought he had toned down the partying stuff, that aspect, a little bit, and maybe he hasn't, and I don't know. But I'm not going to automatically assume that he's a bad guy or he did anything wrong. Let me ask you this about that. In the dead of the summer... Yeah, I don't know. Is it not toned down to go to downtown Buffalo with your friends? Right, I don't know. As a single guy to bring a girl back home to your place? I don't know what the expectations should be. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I... I wanted to high five Yarmer Yager for the picture incident right. and bringing home a girl, and that was more about his attitude than anything else. Like that was a cool. And you can maybe say he's earned that as someone who's sure. basically caused 
no trouble, but I guess maybe this is a long. If if the assumption here is just that, look at he didn't rape her, right? If, if we're gonna go on that, and at this point, I think that's that's the safe fair to thing. Okay, yeah, that there was no raping involved. My instinct is to say, well, he didn't do anything wrong, right? He has a Buffalo police officer hired to handle the driving, right, and the security, right? So it's not like he's out there. Being irresponsible, drinking and driving, like right, Ry- uh, like O'Reilly this summer, sure. who we've given a pass to basically for that, right? Yeah, I think the whole not thing, doing anything like that. I think the O'Reilly versus Kane thing is. I think Kane is going to have to re- He set himself up with because his of his past. past, right? He anything he does that might get looked at twice, other guys might be able to sweep under the rug because of who he is. So. No, he probably didn't do anything wrong. I know, like, firsthand, guys like Jay McKee and Rhett Warner, when they were here, were known to be guys to go out to the bars and stuff. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you hear Barr and Pat Kane, you just think back to cab drivers or uh, whatever. Be, behave it's gotta in a be certain o- way when he was It's got to be okay, and- though, for a kid his age. Um, yes, it is a double standard. In the summer. Sure. You know? Yeah. In the in the middle of summer, yeah. When the, it's got to be okay for him to go to the party district in the city he lives in with transportation covered, right? And be able to drink and carouse with women. We've talked about this. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's like a boy who cried wolf thing, I guess. Like not as far as the rape thing goes, but as far as like I said, his past behavior kind of dictates people looking at him a different way. Uh, but we talked about this before. Um, I lost my train of thought. But well, yeah, I, I don't. Well, you know, and those, and then let's look at those past instances. You know, the first one is obviously with the cab driver. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's bad. Um, but the bad part is the way he treated the cab driver, right? Right. And then you look at the incident in Wisconsin, um, and I don't know the details about that one quite as well with the hot tub and whatever went out there. Oh, I know what I was going to say. the The thing we were getting into uh, in the past was kind of how the writers in Chicago were real quick to say like regardless of how this outcome goes it shows maybe he's just not worth the headache type thing and maybe this was a headache for the Blackhawks like PR maybe it didn't look great for them to have him playing in the preseason or whatever looks great for them right now the way they stood by him though huh right but that that was probably unfair of their reporters. I, I don't know what he would do. I don't know what they would expect a, how old is he? 24, 25. Yeah. About that. Yeah. I don't know what they would expect. I think he's in 88 over the summer. Earth year. I don't know. All right. Let's do a fo- couple football things real quick. Cause we're already running long. Music stopped. Colin Kaepernick is benched. Yeah. And not only is he benched, but he's benched for Blaine, Blaine Gabbert. Yeah. I don't get that. Uh, let me ask you this. Would you want him to be a bill? No, not interested. I think we have that guy. In Tyrod Taylor, I don't, I don't see the difference. If Tyrod, you think Tyrod Taylor is as talented as Colin Kaepernick? I think he's arguably more athletic. He's not as big, so I mean, he might face more injuries. But I mean, I think he's it, more athletic. Wow, I, that's. I mean, if they're gonna, that's definitely not throw what I would have thought. Wild, I mean, just from a speed, uh, maybe ability to deke a defender. I think Tyrod might be the best in the league at that. But hmm. as far as throwing, I don't know. I don't, I don't even know that he's discernibly worse than Kaepernick. I mean, his. I think you got a much better case there. 
I know Tyrod Taylor is athletic, but Colin Kaepernick is like Randall Cunningham athletic. I mean, he might be one of the top three most athletic players to ever play the position. <clears throat> I, I I'd have to look up. I'd have to look up Tyrod's numbers. I guess just based. I, I don't know how to argue that. Really, I don't have a especially great for case a guy who's played five games as a starter in the National Football League. Right. I uh, mean, if I just look at speed, is Tyrod faster? He might be. I don't know. I'd have to look up their 40 Then times. if you wanted to make the case that he's faster, I think that's different than athletic. I, I think Colin Kaepernick is a top three most athletic ever to play the position. Um, I mean, if you watch the way he played playoff game against Green Bay, comes to mind. I mean, that's an athlete. Well, right. Yeah, that was crazy. I mean, that's like... He had like 180 yards rushing or something, right? Below Mike Vick athlete stuff. Right. Um, but clearly, here's the thing. I just think they're close enough in that Tyrod is more of an unknown, whereas Kaepernick, I mean... I saw a report that said people were sick and tired of seeing him walk around with his headphones on. I think he just might not have like any leadership capability at all. Yeah, maybe. You know, and I and obviously things have just gone from bad to worse. He there. seems like a guy that for I don't know how quarterbacks make it their entire life. Maybe they just are too good through high school, college, all that to the best. Like certain guys just don't handle criticism well and he seems to be one of those. That's like, very fair. Someone that comes out and says like I'm not gonna play like my job's on the line or something. It just felt like a weird thing to say, like for as bad as he was playing. Maybe I think if Drew Brees was asked that or something, well, he really has no competition. But I think the answer should be like the cookie cutter answer should be like my job's on the line every week. You know what right. I mean? Something like that. Like very immature. Yeah. Very yeah. immature. <clears throat> but no, I mean Tyrod is trending upward or is at least an unknown still. Kaepernick has been trending downward since he's like he had this awesome upward trajectory when they first put him in and since then he's been probably going backwards i wonder if it's tied to harbaugh's decline in some way you know the reason we we were also shocked that he took out alex smith just kind of out of the blue yeah to finish that season with kaepernick and then we were so like well, this guy knows quarterbacks because look they they did make it to a super bowl right yeah you know and then they had the next year which was fairly successful as well and then the year after that is where harbaugh and the team and everything just kind of went down and i think some of his immaturity and his lack of leadership and his lack of focus and wanting to wear his headphones i mean veterans on the team said every time you see him at the facility he's on the headphones yeah so how is he relating to everyone if he has headphones on i wonder if that was different under harbaugh i wonder too sometimes those college guys when the going gets tough and they abandon the team, they leave kind of like a, a wake of just a mess. Well, there's th- another quarterback that might be available. Maybe you might want him, Matt Stafford. Uh, the Lions are cleaning house. Uh, yeah, they fired their GM and their president today. They're not going to make a move on coach now, but I probably would be surprised if he's there next year. Uh, Matt Stafford is a guy who's proven – um, on the field, he's got the pedigree. He's got the pedigree. I've and never he's proven it. I've never liked Matt Stafford, but that's from like an objective football fan. I never saw him as one of those elite guys that maybe he was lumped in with just based on his draft status. But as a Bills fan that like hasn't seen a good quarterback since Jim Kelly, I mean, 
That would be a hard argument to not make. I don't think Tyrod has earned that yet. It sort of shocks me how much Bills fans love Tyrod Taylor, to be honest. I mean, give me a quarterback you would rather have than Tyrod Taylor because I'm 0 for 2 here so far. No, I said I, I said oh, Stafford I probably would, probably ha- would have, I would have to. Yeah. Oh, okay. I don't think – I don't know if he's available yet, yet yeah. uh, but he's – the Lions appear to be looking to uh, – to rebuild, and they have thirty-six million dollars invested into, like two players, two right? players him for next Johnson. year. Him and Calvin Johnson. Yeah. Would you want Calvin Johnson? Not until we have a quarterback. I, I don't. Yeah. No, you don't think Calvin Johnson on one side? They and tried that with Watkins uh, on the other. Oh, it'd be an improvement. I'm not saying it wouldn't. Well, be I'm an saying would it, it wouldn't help Taylor. Taylor oh, looks yeah. like he can throw a nice deep ball. Sure, that's the one thing that surprised me. About Taylor is how well he's been able to get the ball downfield. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in that respect, sure. And I guess the contract probably wouldn't be long. I would assume now he's probably looking for a one-year deal next year to try to. I think next year would be. And Calvin it. Johnson's the the classic like I'm going to gamble on Calvin Johnson next year, play somewhere for ten million bucks, and see if I can get bank one more long-term deal somewhere. I think the way the Bills are right now, they're more built to win now than they are to build to win in the future. So, yeah, I guess in a short term, yeah, I would like that. It would feel a little bit like the Terrell Owens thing, except for that team was nowhere near ready, built right. to win. But uh, That was uh we need to get some attention on this team kind of a move. Yeah, I mean, Percy Harvin has been a bust. He seems like a head case of He's some sort. He's maybe never coming back. Yeah, maybe to the NFL at all. Yeah, yeah he's I, I, retiring. I don't. I don't know what's going on there. They call he's it personal. Been reason. a problem everywhere. Everywhere. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, Calvin Johnson here would be a serious upgrade over Robert Woods or Chris Hogan. Um, Vernon Davis was traded. Yeah. Yeah. Like that could be a an underrated move because you know Peyton likes to throw to the tight end. Yeah. Owen Daniels didn't seem to have much left. What a trade for him. It'll be yeah. Worst oh, team God, in the league yeah. to maybe the best. To an undefeated. Yeah. Well, that'll be interesting to watch. And the last thing I wanted to mention about the NFL is are the Colts cheating? And did you hear the report that came out that said that Andrew Luck has been battling broken ribs injury, for weeks? And he's now. not on the injury report. He's not in the injury report. Man, I'll tell you what, if I was the team who literally tattled on another team <laughs> about footballs being deflated, I would, man, would I be towing the line. Now, their reasoning. Now, that's a report. And their reasoning, right? I, I believe I a, heard, was that he hasn't been limited at all in practice, right? So he doesn't have to be on the injury report, something like that. There's some weird gray area. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know what the purpose of the NFL injury report is, to be honest. I, I Coaches manipulate it anyway. Everyone on the Patriots. Well, that's is just what I wanted to say. Questionable. We have this in one of our fantasy leagues. We have like a injury disclaimer type of situation, right? And one of the rules on the books is is they have to be on the injury report. And I've always sort of fought for they don't have to be on the injury report if you, as the player, can prove there's some discernible reason to believe he might be might not injured. play yeah you know, i mean because i, don't know I think they lie about this all the time i don't trust them at all and it's another example of something i think everyone does yeah and when you get caught it looks stupid and it makes the nfl look even more stupid for still pursuing and not only pursuing but double down 
on the Tom Brady stuff. Why do you think they make is that fan service? Like what is the point of that? Like the injury oh, report it's for gambling. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely it's for gambling. But I mean that must drive literally isn't the whole Belichick thing just everybody's questionable? Like Well, he put Tom Brady on the injury report probable with shoulder for a hundred straight games or something. <laughs> so it's ridiculous anyway. All right. Anything else you want to add football wise? No, we went pretty long. Uh Le'Veon Bell getting hurt sucks. I've never That was a lot of injuries last week, huh? Yeah, just this year in general. Uh and the Achilles injury. Yeah, that's when a, did that's, that become that's like the a sports football injury yeah. thing of this year? Yeah, I, it's been a brutal, brutal year, and we talked about it. I think off the air, but if you're a fantasy football player and there was like a draft right now, it'd be so weird. The draft, like Deion Lewis, would arguably be a first round pick, and I think it'd be really fun one year to do a like a mid season league to do two leagues. Yeah, ha- and one at you'd have to do probably a total points league. Okay, you know, like because you could, you wouldn't have time for playoffs, right? But it might be fun to do eight weeks, give a winner, redraft, do eight weeks, just to do it one time, sure. and yeah, see what it was like. But oh man, I missed out on D'Angelo Williams in a league by three dollars. Was that my league? It was. Yeah, I had everything I had left, seventy-two bucks. We're going Someone really long now, but seventy-five. <laughs> I thought when that was looking at the, uh, I bid the most I realistically. I bid as much like one dollar more than the guy, than the lowest guy that could beat me. Okay. So like I, I think I somebody but you had, didn't you don't need a back really. I don't really, but I lost Bell, so it would have been nice. Oh, Bell was your guy. Yeah, but uh, wow, I can't believe you didn't spend everything for Bell. It wouldn't have mattered really. No, because if I there was only one, I had like well, 60, you make way too many moves. I had like sixty six dollars, and uh, I can't believe you had that much left. The guy that was the next lowest was like $65. So if I bet everything, I'm banking on my team never having another injury. So I went... We have such huge benches, though. So I went $1 more than the guy. He's ranked number in the in the top seven on ESPN at running back this week. Yeah. Yeah, I buy it. You know, when is there ever at week eight a guy like that available? Yeah, I buy it. Yeah, I, I was bummed. Especially I this year. Them. Especially this year. That's the why if you have a guy... Like, my running backs right now are Todd Gurley and Chris Ivory in that league. Like, Todd Gurley, there's only, like, three guys as good as him maybe in the league right, right. now just because there's nobody healthy. We talk about McDavid and Eichel being generational talents. Todd Gurley is the football version of a generational talent. Yeah, I got him in our dynasty league, too. I'm pumped about it. Ugh. All right. Very Let's long, take a break, hopefully. and we will come back with Tim Graham. Our next guest is from Wyndham, Ohio, and is a graduate of Baldwin-Wallace College. He spent over eight years working for the Buffalo News, and one of his pieces last year is honored in this year's Best American Sports Writing, uh, as edited by Wright Thompson. Uh, He's also covered the Dolphins for the Palm Beach Post. He's worked for ESPN.com. And he's been nice enough to make five appearances on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to Tim Graham. How you doing, Mr. Graham? 
I'm doing great. Do you keep a sportscaster's media guide that you can refer to uh, for a number of appearances and records and things like that? Yeah, I do, actually. Fantastic. Yeah. Do I, I appear in there anywhere else? Do I hold any records? or? Um, uh, well, longest, to... longest interview or least popular interview, anything like that? <laughs> no, I was going to say, to be honest, the only real uh, thing we track in the media guide right now is number of appearances. And then there's also a sep- separate like section of like, don't ever call that guy again or something. He hates you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is my fifth or sixth. I've been on five times before. Or this is number five. This is number five. All right. Yeah, people get let's fa- make it special. People get fascinated by that, especially when I'll tell someone they made double digits or something, and they'll mm-hmm. be like, "Oh, my number one," and I'll be like, "Nah, Lee Jenkins is number one." And they're like, oh, how many times? And I'll say 20, and they, they're crushed then. So. Yeah, I figured five wasn't anywhere near the uh, leaderboard. So yeah, Lee I'm Jen- just happy to contribute in any way I can. Uh, we're just happy to have you on and be on your good side. I, you know what? I, I, mentioned, <laughs> I mentioned to Don earlier. I said he sort of reminds me on Twitter of a, of a comic. And then these people go into the comedy clubs, and they think they're going to like outwit the comic. And the comic just dummies them around in front of their date. And they have to <laughs> – that's what you remind me of on Twitter. These people, they don't realize who they're stepping up to, and then you just – man, you just smack them around. I, I like it. I enjoy it. Well, I like to have fun with it, and I've said it a number of times. Right? There are a lot of people out there who don't understand my motivations in regard to Twitter. I do it because I enjoy it. It makes me laugh. I figure if it makes me laugh and I do it with a degree of intelligence – that there will be other people out there who find it funny too. I'm not, I'm not doing it just to be an a-hole. Uh, but my general philosophy is I will respond however you approach me. So I don't go out looking for this. And uh, if somebody wants to ask me a question about um, the latest with the Patrick Kane case or my feelings on the Bills offensive line situation or Doug Whaley, I'll give them a, a response. And you know, it, as if, but usually people don't do that. They just want to try to put me in my place. And my general concept is that you don't have to follow me. So if you decide you want to start this conversation, uh, let's see uh, who finishes it. And uh, I, I enjoy those given those give and take moments. Have you ever had a conversation about this philosophy with Mike Harrington? Because he's a guy who I think struggles a little bit in the sense that you can really tell that he lets people get to him. You can kind of see his blood pressure rising. <laughs> Richard De- Richard Deitch and I were actually talking about this about because Richard Deitch is like people accuse me of taking Twitter too seriously and getting too angry. He's like, but I guess him and Mike uh, Richard Deitch actually interned at the Buffalo News a long time ago and worked under yeah. Mike. Yeah, so they know each other pretty well. And uh, so we were joking about we were joking about that. But have you ever? Uh, talk to Mike about Twitter and how you handle these types of people? No, I've never done that. Um, Mike and I rarely cross paths because, uh, you know, Such we both, beats. Yeah. you know, cover different mm-hmm. things. And even though I don't, I'm not on the bills of beat anymore, you know, neither of us are in an office. You know, we work at whatever re- arena we're at. I right. work out of my home uh, when I'm not at one bill's drive. 
And so Mike and I, we'll see each other in the office if I'm coming through to fill out my expense report or something. And this would be something, one of the last things we'd talk about. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think we do have different philosophies. I've really never discussed it other than on radio shows or on your podcast, you know, the philosophies of the Twitter. People will sometimes ask me about it. But in regard to coworkers or things like that, no, I, I never really discuss it. Um, I, I'm blessed that at the Buffalo News, they give us the freedom and the liberty to defend ourselves as we see fit. Uh, I've never been told by a boss, uh, this tweet is inappropriate or knock that off or anything like that. Um, generally, it's um, it, my, my Twitter feed is always clean, I think, with the exception of, you know, I'll have some double entendres in there. And uh, maybe sometimes I'll retweet something that has a curse word in it, but I don't uh, curse myself. Uh, you know, so I, I think that, as I mentioned earlier, as long as I keep a certain intelligence about it um, and an erudition uh, about it, then I, think it come, then I think people accept it for what it is. It's just me having fun with it. Well, I, I, I want that. That's what I want people to do. There is a large segment of people out there who don't view it that way. They think I'm being petty or thin-skinned, but really uh, people need to understand that I am sitting there laughing my ass off. And I think another thing people don't understand is you have to do something because, I mean, even on a small scale like myself, you know, there's there's a never-ending supply of people who are going to come at you for – of various things. So you have to respond in some way, you know, there's, you got to do something. Yeah. I think it, yeah. generally you respond in a way that says, Hey, look, I'm, I, I'm seeing your criticism here and this is what I generally, I find it. Uh, I will make fun of myself. I don't take myself too seriously. Therefore you shouldn't, you know, it's generally my, you know, some, I've gotten a lot of you suck tweets uh, today, uh, today for depending on when people are listening to this podcast today being Thursday, the day that, Erie County District Attorney Frank Sedita officially announced there'll be no charges against Patrick Kane, and uh, so people will say you suck. And in many, in many <laughs> degrees of it, I will say yes, I agree with you. I, I do suck. But, uh, uh, but the thing about Twitter that uh, you know we could talk the whole time about Twitter, I guess, is is that you know Twitter there's a there's a mentality from people when they follow you. They feel that that gives them certain rights. Uh, just because they follow me doesn't mean they get to say whatever they want to me. It doesn't mean they get to uh, uh, lie about my work or disparage my work. I have, and so a lot of times I'll respond, and then I'll get uh, additional feedback on top of that response saying, why do you bother? Uh, leave the trolls alone. I'll be like, hey, I don't forfeit the right to defend myself just because I'm on Twitter. Um, so I think, you know, if you want to approach me in a certain way, I have the right to respond. I don't have the right to come out and do that to people who don't follow me, or I don't have the right to do that. Even if I do follow somebody, I don't have the right to go out looking for these arguments. I think that's where the right, that's where it's stupid. I have the right to respond if I choose. And, uh, generally if I, if I can think of a response within the first few seconds and I don't have to think, I won't sit there at my Twitter and try to think of a response. If I think of something quickly that I think will be amusing or, or poignant, then I will. If not, then I move on to the next thing. Well, let's get into Kane a little bit because you've actually been in my. If I wanted to know what was going on with the Kane case, I've went to you and and read what what you wrote about it. 
you were the person I found out about it from. Um, and I've just kind of followed you because I never thought you were being unfair in either direction. And it seemed like you were really well dialed in uh, to get the information up to date. And I got to tell you, I really struggled with this the whole time because I don't know Patrick Kane. I've never met him myself. Um, my younger brother, when he was the captain of the St. Francis prep team, um, they would practice at leisure, uh, and the hour before Kane would skate by himself and would invite my brother on all the time. Uh, so he knows him a little bit. And then the captain of the St. Francis prep team, when my brother was a sophomore, played with him on the Empire State Games team. Um, and a few times the three of them have interacted. So it's kind of like I know people who know him, but I don't know him at all. You know, I, I think, right. you know, I, so I, I've had, I, I have no idea whether, uh, I never had any, you know, to me that I would personally, I was out of it. But what I have, um, kind of enjoyed about Patrick Kane is for whatever reason, I've taken a little bit of pride in the idea that maybe the greatest American hockey player of all time came from the city I live in. For whatever reason, maybe sure. that's maybe that's silly. Maybe it's not. But and also developed in some of the same places that I developed and my brothers developed things like that. No, totally understandable. Um, and probably because of that, I wanted to believe him a little bit. But the other side of that is, I've also worked in the Buffalo Public Schools in drug and alcohol prevention. And I've counseled a lot of kids who've been uh, victims of sexual assaults. Um, and uh, I've seen the other side, too. And you want to be really careful. Um, it's so sensitive, you know. And, I, and I've really struggled with that, especially on this show, because people, you know, pre this, we've always been sort of a rah-rah show for Kane. You know, so then this happens. People come to us. Well, what are you going to say about your boy Kane? And I've never known what to say. And you know what? Today, I still don't know what to say. What do you think today means for if you're a fan of Patrick Kane? Uh, what does today mean? Um, if you're the kind of fan who wouldn't have been a fan if this was just. A 100%, you know, slam dunk. He did it, and he's going to jail. You know, like, geez, I don't even know if I – like I said, I've struggled with this. I'm trying right. to answer the question as best as I can, but – Well, it's a sad situation all the way around. I right, yeah, why don't you talk for a minute? Not necessarily how it ended. I mean, the conclusion, uh, I'm not saying it's sad because, uh, you know, I'm not pounding the table and saying there's no justice here. I think it's sad for Patrick Kane that uh, he's had to deal with this for three months. You look at the, you know, by comparison, it's been used a lot. I don't think it's apples to apples, but it's, it's close enough. And Ben Roethlisberger in which um, he, he was investigated uh, for a rape allegation and no charges were filed. That happened in a very tidy way uh, relative to Patrick Kane. It wasn't as though Ben Roethlisberger went into a season and had this looming over him for a little while. Right. Um, it was. Um, it seemed to be a lot more 
organized in terms of the process, whereas this lasted three months. The twists and the turns uh, that were you know, not all ent- entirely in, in Patrick Kane's control, maybe none of it really in Patrick Kane's control, although we learned today that he really he, he didn't speak to police uh, at all, and, and it took him, uh, we knew that uh, in the past it had taken him a few weeks to give his DNA sample, so I don't really know how cooperative he was or that he bent over backwards to help um, the investigation, uh, but you know, that this went on for so long, I think in many ways was unfair to him. I think it's, uh, but I also think it's sad for potentially, I mean, we don't know. I mean, this is the thing where we're going to constantly be saying, we'll never know what happened that night. Uh, sad for the victim, uh, because uh, this, unfortunately, and I'm speaking, and I'm now going to speak about victims in general, this is the type of thing that you look at from the outside, and if this ever happens to you or a loved one or whomever, uh, this is the type of story that prevents people from coming forward. I don't want to get ridiculed and mocked in public. Uh, I've had people following me uh, today with fake uh, Twitter accounts that are in the uh, accuser's name. Um, I know the accuser's name has been reported by other publications. Oh, Buffalo has it? News really? Did not and, and will never wow. um, print any any accuser. You know, that's it's just uh, you want to be able to you want to be able in a, in a story like this to handle it with a, a certain deference uh, that assuming Patrick Kane's innocence does not assume that the victim is lying. You know, you have to play it down the middle when you're trying to cover something like this. So you can't, it can't be one or the other. I, mean, I think a lot of people viewed any coverage that didn't assume that the woman was lying uh, as, um, as an implication that Patrick Kane is guilty. Did it. Right. Yeah. So yeah. It, it's because it was such a public thing and because it got ugly and because the accuser pulled out of the case, uh, I think that a lot of people may look at it as why bother? Uh, I had this happen to me again. I had, let's say something happens to uh, a woman or, or a man or whomever, a child, uh, and um, this heinous thing happened, and I don't want to have to go forward because more heinous things are going to happen to me uh, through the process of law enforcement and the courts and things like that. Right. Um, so I think it's it was a way for a lot of people who wouldn't normally think of sex offenses or things like domestic violence, uh, child abuse, all these ugly things that we've seen crop up in sports over the last couple of years, whether it's Adrian Peterson, Ray Rice, Patrick Kane, um, that, and I'm saying that in names who are involved. I'm not implying guilt at all by mentioning Patrick Kane in in the same sentence with with those guys, Ben Roethlisberger, whatever, uh, is that uh, it almost forces you as a sports fan to consider things that you don't normally want to do because sports are supposed to be your diversion, your way to escape reality. And now here is a very famous and popular hockey player uh, who brings championships to his his city and has made, helped make the Blackhawks relevant after years in the darkness. And now he's being attacked uh, by an accuser, an anonymous accuser, and by the media, uh, or vice versa. You are someone who follows sports, and you are um, 
you know, maybe you're detached from the Blackhawks aspect of it. Anyways, you're being forced to pay attention to how the process works, and maybe you haven't in the past. And so you come away, I think, a little more cynical after this happens, not in, as a member of the media. I'm talking about as the average fan uh, who has either rooted for Patrick Kane or is a Sabres fan or has uh, the fat head on the wall or has you know hockey cards in, their, in a binder, whatever it is. Yeah, I think you maybe come away a little more cynical about sports and the fact that, um, you know, and I, I guess the, the people that we choose to, to root for. Let me ask you a couple things about what you what you may or may not know through your reporting. Um, one, do you think or is there any reason to believe uh, that the alleged victim uh, stopped cooperating at this point uh, because she would rather pursue a civil case where there's a lower burden of proof and didn't want to go any further in the criminal case, uh, which seemed to have been crumbling um, in the no, last few No, I don't think weeks. one has anything to do with the other. No, separate. I think, you know, you, she could have still stayed within the criminal aspect of it or the criminal prosecution or the criminal investigation, and that wouldn't affected the civil at all. In fact, you could argue that, um, you know, a, a criminal charges make your civil case that much easier. Uh, to, uh, you know, to meet that burden. If it's already on to trial and you can point and say, look, a grand jury, uh, viewed this as worthwhile a prosecution and this evidence was, uh, uh presented in, in a court, uh, and whatever. Um, so I don't think that one has anything to do with the other. Um, I do take it at face value, uh, regarding the stress of the case. And I okay. think that as, you know, the Buffalo News reported, um, on, in Sunday's edition, and as we were gathering uh, towards the tail end of last week, uh, information from our sources who were saying that this is not going to go to trial, this uh, there will not be any criminal charges for Patrick Kane or go to the grand jury, is and this is my theory. I don't know this to be true, but I believe that there's an element of you can't fire me, I quit. You know, if you're going to not see this through, I'm um, speaking maybe if, um, in a hypothetical sense from the accuser's viewpoint. Um, then I'm, I'm just, I'm done with this. I mean, I, I mean, I think that the frustrations of anything, whether it be, maybe people can relate to that, whether it be a boss, uh, you know, it's, you know, you're not going to get the promotion. So, all right, it's time for me to bow out or find something better to do or a relationship in which, uh, it's not going to lead uh, where you think it is. So it's time to move on. Uh, you know, this was a long ordeal. This was something that, um, you know, I can, uh, I can be, uh, I'm empathetic towards uh, the accuser for you know three months. Uh, she had to deal with this, and I think that rightfully people can look at it and say, "Well, yeah, Patrick Kane had to deal with it too uh, for three months." But yeah, I mean, it was it was a burden for both sides. It was emotional for both sides. I think it was a no win for both sides. Um, I think that really, when you look at it, and you're getting a roundabout way to the the question you asked me originally about what should we think about this today. Uh, I'm I, I'm sure that Patrick Kane is breathing a sigh of relief, but I doubt that he feels triumphant uh, about what has happened. I mean, over the past three months, um, I mean, it has been awful for him, and it's um, I'm sure that he's regretting a lot about what transpired that night, about staying out as late as he did, about bringing this woman back to his place, uh, about how much he had to drink, whatever. Right. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of soul searching being done on both sides. 
the district attorney even said today, uh, kind of scolded Patrick Kane for the way he comports himself in public and saying, you know, he's going to have to find a different way to live his life. Um, he finds himself in these situations, and whether it was with the cab driver right, or that's at least the, three. Yeah, you know, any, yeah, anything you see on Deadspin regarding what happened in Wisconsin right. about being blackout drunk, about violence, or at least you know this is hearsay from people who are willing to, I guess, go come forward to, to Deadspin at least, whatever that that's worth. But um, you know, there's been pictures of women taking selfies of him while he's asleep at best, passed out at worst, uh, and she then she's rummaging through his stuff in his hotel room. I mean, he puts right. himself in these positions that are documented, uh, maybe not in a legal sense, but at least on social media. And so does Yara Yager, right? I mean, he's not the only one, at least in terms of that. Well, sure, but yeah, but Yager's in the position where he came out and said, I don't care. I mean, he was like, yeah, so what? But um, that's... You know, that's having sex with somebody. That's not being passed out at a bar in Wisconsin, you know, right. with your forehead on the bar. It's not being ejected from establishments because you're too drunk. Right, or a um, cab, it's, fighting with a cab you know, guy, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, so anyways, uh, I, I think that there, like I, I, I say, there's a lot, probably a lot of soul searching here from Patrick Kane, from his people who are close to him. I know that the Blackhawks were not happy about this at all, regardless of his innocence or guilt. When all this happened, uh, there was a lot of disgust within the organization of Patrick. We've told you about this. Uh, You know, we've, you know, he was on a short leash with them. uh, But so there was a really tricky spot that the organization had to be in of standing by their guy and showing some loyalty while at the same time being fed up with his antics and how he conducts himself away from the ice. Um, so anyways, there's a lot for Patrick Kane to chew on, regardless of the fact that these charges aren't forthcoming, but this was not a, this was not an, um, I think this is just a, today was a sigh of relief day. I don't think it was, um, any cause for celebration. Let me ask you this. There was a point where it looked like this was going to the grand jury and then it was delayed and there was rumor it was delayed because they were negotiating a settlement. Based on your reporting, is there any information that they ever actually negotiated a settlement, the two sides? I, I, I believe that to be um, probable, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not privy to a lot of that. And here's where, and, and you were, and thank you so much for the nice things you said about my coverage, but I, I, I should have interrupted then. Um, I may have been a go-to place on Twitter uh, to uh, see what was going on with the Patrick Kane case, but the lead reporters on this and who did a, an impeccable job um, the entire way were uh, Lou Michelle and Dan Herbeck. And a couple of times I was just along for the ride uh, with my sources or, um, you know, helping out. Uh, but, you know, they did a lot of the reporting on this. Um, I think that, you know, the, I don't think, I know that the accuser did have a, um, an attorney representing her who handles civil, uh, cases and not the criminal aspect of it. That's what Tommy Iwanu did as, because he, he knew the family and he was trying to help them through the process. Uh, but yes, yeah, she did have an attorney who I believe uh, and this is my belief is that they there was there were at least discussions at some point and there still might be um, I don't know she has a, a year from the date of the accusation to file a civil case um, 
you know, who knows what can happen between now and then, um, you know, what other evidence they may have or things that wouldn't be admissible in a criminal case, but maybe she has uh, other women or uh, people who can maybe step forward. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just speaking hypothetically now, but um, I think there are a lot of things that could happen just because uh, that this case is over from a criminal standpoint. Uh, I don't think it's it's over right. uh, for Patrick Kane. From uh, and congratulate uh, bravo to the other reporters as well. I thought the Buffalo News did a great job, really uh, covering this all along. And like I said, I always went to it. Thank you. Um, from the other reporting, uh, the district attorney today said that there was just so many inaccuracies or contradictions in the stories. Uh, do you have any idea what 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 those might have been? Is there any is there anything that that is there like a main reason why ah, they just can't win this case because of A, B, and C or A or what any of those I don't know what been? he's referring to there. No. I was not involved in any of the face to face interviews with um, with Frank Sedita today. Um, from what I understand, not all the outlets were. I, I saw that uh, Channel Seven was a little upset that it didn't get to speak with. Uh, Frank he didn't Sedita say at all today. Anyway. He uh, North Chicago anyway. media, which yeah. I think wanted to, uh, but um, I think that would have, that would have been my first question. Anytime anyone says to me there this is not true, or there they want to say uh, there are inaccuracies X Y Z, you know, or, or they don't. Uh, I shouldn't say X Y Z that there are um, inaccuracies in your reporting. My next question is always, what are they? Because if you're going to tell us that they're inaccurate and this is a problem, let's make it a point that these don't keep getting repeated. I mean, and then usually I would say nine times out of 10, the person who tells me there's inaccuracies in the reporting will say, well, I don't want to get into that now. Right. Well, if it's significant enough to bring it up now, let, you know, let's talk about it. So, so, you know, um, so I don't know what those inaccuracies are. I don't know which outlet it's referring to. There was a lot of muckraking journalism going on, um, especially very early in the process. Uh, there have been some outlets, as I've mentioned earlier during the podcast here, that uh, actually uh, named the accuser. Um, I can't believe that. So there that. was a lot yeah. of stuff out there uh, in which uh, it was being written as a, a, almost a true crime novel, um, more than just uh, reporting. Um, so I'm guessing, you know, maybe the Buffalo news, did we get everything hundred percent correct? Uh, probably not. I mean, we're talking, you're talking about sources, you're talking about people from all the different sides, but you know, we were incredibly careful with multiple sourcing, uh, pretty much everything that we reported on this case, not only had to go past multiple editors, but also our staff attorney, uh, because it was such a delicate case. And, um, so, yeah, and it was carefully, carefully reported, probably the most carefully reported story I've ever worked on. Um, so I so I don't know. I'm not sure what uh, what Frank Sedita took exception with in general with the reporting. Uh, let me ask you just one more thing about this. I want to ask you one more thing. About, I know we're getting long. I'll ask you one thing about your piece of Best American Sports Writing, and then I'll let you go. Um, as, sure. a, as a citizen uh, who lives here, uh, cares about it. I care about it here. Um, you know, I love Buffalo. Uh, um, I have a lot of pride uh, for the area, like many people who live here do. How should I feel about how 
this case was handled from the Hamburg police uh, to the district attorney um, to all of the um, to the hospital that handled the rape kit. Uh, all those things. Should I feel like, uh, as a city, the people in charge of investigating these things on behalf of victims and behalf of accused, even in the most, uh, even in the most intensely scrutinized cases, uh, were competent and uh, did their job as best as they could? Uh, well, I don't. I'm... How should you feel? I, I, I guess I can't tell you that. I'll tell you how I feel about it. Okay, maybe that's more I fair. have I have no disrespect for anyone involved in this process. Um, I I like Frank Sedita a lot. I like him in his job. I mean, his, his role as the district attorney. I'm a fan. I guess I should say a fan of his work. Uh, I'm a fan of Tommy Iwanu, uh, even though he stepped in it. You know, he found himself in a jackpot because of the accuser's mother and the whole rape kit bag hoax. Right. Um, but so I, I'm, I, Tom really, I think, seemed to be, um, it was an embarrassing moment for him. And he did the right thing by resigning from the case um, because I think his, his record is impeccable. And everybody in, in Western New York knows that. Um, I'm a fan of Paul Cambria. Uh, I've in, uh, interacted with Paul probably, you know, quite a bit over the years on various stories. Um, Tommy Uwani, my first interaction with him was when I met him at the news conference, but you know, I know his work from afar. Um, I take that back. He also represented Sugar Ray Leonard when Joe Macy had broken his contract with Ray Leonard as a promoter. Um, and I remember I, I, I spoke with Uwani then. Uh, regarding uh, Ray Leonard and winning that uh, winning that case, uh, but other than that, I've had no interaction with him. Um, the Hamburg police, I thought, did what they were supposed to do. Um, their um, their ability to lock things down uh, from an information standpoint, from the leaks, I thought was amazing. Uh, there were people there who. Um, you know, it, the, it, that just rarely happens. I mean, usually there are leaks on a big case like this, but they, I think they did a fine job. Um, the Buffalo police, to that extent, I mean, I thought that was an embarrassment with the off-duty lieutenant who right. was uh, essentially um, Kane. Patrick Kane's chauffeur and caddy uh, for the evening, uh, actually chauffeuring the accuser right to his doorstep. Um, it's just a bad look. Uh, and I think that there's been a lot of things with the Buffalo Police Department that has been a bad look regarding the Molly's Pub thing and allowing um, their their cops to work off dirty uh, off duty security jobs while also wearing their gear as though they're on duty or at least things that designate they're they're a police officer um, while working in, while working in the best interests of not the public but the bar owner that given evening. Um, so the only thing that I thought was wishy-washy was the fact that it took three months and we're hearing three months later, uh, that, you know, the, the district attorney is saying, well, there were all these inconsistencies. And from the beginning we saw inconsistencies, but the three months and Lou Michelle did a big takeout piece on how, um, Frank Sedita handles sexual assault cases. And that this is, that this is kind of his MO that the, the Kane case wasn't unusual. It's that, He's called Slam Dunk Frank in that he has to be able to have a slam dunk victory 
And the criticism was is because he wants his success percentage to be off the charts. He only takes cases to trial that he knows he will certainly win, and that's why his success rate is so high. That's the thing that I don't like about it. You know, I would think that, um, you know, your success rate uh, should reflect more or less uh, what, <laughs> what the statistics say regarding uh, when women come forward uh, with uh, these types of allegations and they don't just put themselves through it. And I'm not saying the case specifically. I just think that, you know, the, his, his, um, his success percentage, I don't want to misquote Lou's story, but I remember when I saw it, I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, like, no, no district attorney could be that good, uh, but it's because he, he just takes it, uh, he, he has to win. So that's the one thing about me learning about this process and law enforcement and the justice system regarding sexual assault cases that just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. But all in all, dealing with the hoax and all this stuff, um, I can't look at this and say shame on anybody. Um, it's just, uh, it seems as though it was, uh, it seems like it was a legit investigation to me. The sportscaster here finishing with Tim Graham, kind enough to take uh, uh, more of his time than I asked for uh, to kind of sort all this out for us on the show. More than you wanted. <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, you could find him on Twitter. He's at by Tim Graham there, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but tread, tread, tread lightly uh, if you're gonna. If you're gonna. <laughs> uh, that's not true. Just, just don't be a, just don't be a slappy, and uh, we'll be all right. You know, hey, uh, one of the th- yeah, I, I enjoy the, I enjoy the give and take and the discussions with people who actually are uh, nice people. We have uh, we have a book club. This is the very last thing we have a book club on the show, and uh, really we do it because people who would never come on this show write books, but then since they wrote that book, they'll come on shows they've never been on before. So it's kind of a smokescreen to get good guests, but we have <laughs> we have a book club, and uh, one of the very first books was the uh, 2011 Best American Sports Writing Series, the one that Jane Levy edited, and um, Jane was nice enough to come on and talk about it, and we've had a, a really, just a close connection with that book. Obviously, Michael Wilbon didn't come on when he edited it, uh, but last year, Christopher McDougal came on, and we're hoping to get Wright Thompson in the next week or two, uh, but... You know, uh, you've had a long career uh, writing about sports. You've been the president of the Boxers Writing Association of America. Um, I just want to know, when you found out the news that your piece on Daryl Taylor uh, was included in in the anthology, uh, what did that mean to you as a writer? Uh, was it a big deal? Is it, is it one of those kind of aw shucks things? Uh, what does it mean to be a part of the uh, the Best American Sports Writing 2015 edition, I guess? It, it's an off-the-charts big deal for me. Um, prior to that, the thing that I would like to say or that I was most proud of uh, is that uh, in the past five, five years, the Buffalo News has nominated me, uh, nominated me for the Pulitzer Prize three times. Um, now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. It's like the scene in The Jerk when uh, Navin Johnson goes into the bank and one of his forms of ID is his... Uh, astronaut application uh, <laughs> it's uh anybody can be nominated for the pulitzer prize but what it shows to me or the significance to me was that is how highly my bosses thought of my work um and so that was always a very 
prideful thing for me. Uh, the best American sports writing is uh, trumps that uh, because sports writers rarely win Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, and uh, it was the type of work that I wanted to do. The reason I left ESPN and the blogging world was to write meaningful stories. And, um, you know, what happened in the aftermath of my story on Daryl Talley um, was amazing. And to be a part of it, and really it was his story. I was just telling his story. Yeah, but uh, a lot of people came forward, and the money that was raised for him I could not have foreseen it. I, had, I couldn't have fathomed. Um, I knew that it was going to be a big story in terms of reaction, uh, and it was. But for people to raise $175,000 in a few days over a Thanksgiving weekend um, when Internet traffic is kind of low because you're not at your office doing things, you're shopping, you have money to spend, uh, the holidays are coming. Um, the money came, of course, from Western New York, a big chunk of it, but another chunk from West Virginia where he went to college. These are places that don't have a lot of money. And people were donating $5, $10, uh, and it got up to $175. And I just, the idea of crowdfunding just didn't even dawn on me. And that, that was just um, to be able to, to write a story that, did, that made a difference for somebody. And he told me uh, a couple of weeks later, uh, he said that story saved his life. Um, wow. Was probably the biggest honor that I could have had. And I did not submit my story to the best American sports writing. Uh, Lori Chase, who I've got you probably follow on, on Twitter, and yep. she follows you, and she's a huge uh, um, uh, advocate and and uh, of Western New York media, and she's uh, you know friends with a lot of the writers. She submitted my story. She she urged me to submit it. I said no because I'd written some things that I thought deserved honorable mention in the back of the book, and I just thought I'm never going to get in there. I, I I've tried and I've I've written some things. I can't get a sniff. And uh, so she sent it in for me. And uh, when I found out about it, I was blown away because I didn't even I didn't know I didn't know that it had been submitted. Um, so it was, uh, obviously very special for me because of the whole thing, the whole, the whole circle of writing what I thought was a good story, having it make such an impact, uh, on someone's life and then having a re having, so the person I wrote about, it changed their life and somebody who just read it was compelled enough to send it into best American sports writing and then have the editor choose it. Um, from every element of writing a story, it was like a hundred out of a hundred on, on a one to a hundred scale. And, uh, I don't know that I'll ever top that experience. Yeah. And, you know, knowing a lot about the process, you know, Glenn Stout, the series editor goes through hundreds of pieces, which he narrows down to much less than that to hand off to that executive editor or the uh, guest editor. Wright Thompson in this case, who then makes his, you know, 20 or so selection. So it was turned in by a reader and then chosen by Glenn Stout to be worthy of the guest editor's consideration and then chosen by uh, Wright Thompson um, from ESPN. So, so And uh, one more thing that I'm yeah. proud of, just real quick, yeah, that no. adds to it. This Go is ahead. also 100 out of 100, uh, if I had to score it. 
Uh, it's the only newspaper story in the entire book. Mm. Everything else is from a website or magazine that specializes in long-form journalism. And uh, I think that newspapers still have a very prominent future. I know that things have been tough. Uh, fortunately, and you know, the Buffalo News, my bosses uh, give me the time, uh, the time to do the work, the space to run the work in the paper, uh, and money, if it need be, to go travel and track this story down. I think in years past, this would have been a story done over the telephone. Um, you know, there's other papers. They get Daryl Talley on the phone. But when I say, I want to go down to Orlando and interview Daryl Talley, I don't get even a, a fraction of, of what I did get by going to Orlando uh, for that story. Um, so a thank you to the Buffalo News for promoting this style of journalism and allowing me to do it. And guys like Tyler Dunn and Tim O'Shy and the other guys who get a chance to write long-form journalism, um, this is why I, like I said, I left ESPN. And I hate to see what's going on at ESPN with the closing of Grantland and and the layoffs and all these other things. And right. when I took the job at ESPN, that was the pinnacle of the profession, and everybody thought, wow, you finally made it. Uh, but really, I didn't make it in this business, uh, really, until I came back to the Buffalo News uh, a few years ago and had a chance to cover the bills being sold and writing about Daryl Talley and, and, and doing a lot of special work that I would not have been able to do anywhere else. Well, again, you can find Tim on Twitter at by Tim Graham. Of course, he writes for the Buffalo News, uh, which you can buy where newspapers are sold, and also read online at buffalonews.com. And you do a little radio too, right? Yeah, I do. Well, uh, once a week, I go up to Toronto, and I'm on. Uh, I co-host a show with Dave Naylor from four to seven p.m. on TSN ten fifty, and uh, do some uh, television work at TSN studios while I'm up there. So, um, if you're if you're listening and you're from Canada, you've probably seen more of me than you'd like. <laughs> Thanks for all the time tonight, Tim. Congratulations on the best American sports writing, and uh, we can't wait to have Thank you back you. Uh, for time six. Thanks for all the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, talk to you soon. All right, I want to thank uh, Tim Graham from the Buffalo News for being on the podcast today. Uh, it's late, almost 10 o'clock on Thursday. i got to get this thing done uh, so we can get it up. It's going to be the longest one we've done in quite a while. Uh, but it was two two topics I felt like deserved the time. I mean, obviously, uh, we haven't talked about Patrick Kane much because uh, I didn't know what to say mostly. Uh, and Tim Graham uh, really led uh, the narrative here in Buffalo in terms of sourcing and uh, keeping the co- uh, the case updated. Uh, and I thought it was important uh, for fans of Kane or of hockey uh, or of justice uh, to uh, get a sense of what exactly, um, where it stands now that we know uh, criminal charges won't be, won't be, won't be filed on Kane. Uh, and then also, as you're going to hear in a minute, uh, Grantland, it's a site that's been so important to this podcast. Uh, I thought talking with Matt Yoder from Awful Announcing about Grantland was very important. And then, of course, we had to talk about the Saints. So it's a long show. Uh, and real quickly, just to update the book club, uh, one last time, 2015, The Best American Sports Writing, edited by Wright Thompson, 
Uh, we just talked to Tim Graham, who's got a piece in there. I actually got a little bit of hope about Wright Thompson and whether he might do this. Um, the PR from ESPN did write back, um, and she did uh, say that it's in consideration, so we'll see. Uh, the other book is Take Your Eye Off the Puck, How to Watch Hockey by Knowing Where to Look by Greg Wyshynski. Uh, we'll have a copy of that to give away for you. Greg will be on soon, and we'll talk about that with him. Uh, I just got it, uh, so I'm just starting to look through it. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back with Matt Yoder. All right, our next guest is from Columbus, and he's the main man at Awful Announcing. He's also probably the only uh, person on Twitter that's a more popular Saints fan than I am. He's making his second appearance on the podcast today. Warm Sportscasters, welcome to Matt Yoder. What's up, Matt? We're riding high after a three-game winning streak, I think, and maybe, I, I, I said this earlier today, it's kind of funny. I don't know how a guy from Awful Announcing gets a gig like this, but uh, they found out I was a Saints fan down in Shreveport, Louisiana. For like the last two and a half years, I've been going on every Tuesday, not to talk about sports media and like what I actually do for a living, <laughs> but basically to talk about the Saints. And so I was telling this morning, I think Sunday's game, 52-49 against the Giants, that may be the craziest game in the history of the Saints franchise. I mean, I've been a Saints fan for, you know, 25-plus years. That's the craziest game I can remember yeah, from start to finish. Now, we, we've year. had the River City Relay. You know, we've had the Super Bowl, the NFC Championship game, all of that. But, I mean, if you look at that game, 101 points. And just the final play itself, where you have Marcus Murphy needing to, A, take the punt back to midfield, B, fumble it, <laughs> C, have it recovered by a teammate, D, get a face mask penalty on the teammate that recovers the fumble, and then E, kick the 50-yard field goal by a game that you signed off the street for a couple weeks ago. Even by Saints standards, that's pretty wild. So we're riding high, and I couldn't think of a better way to keep riding that high than by appearing on the Sportscasters podcast. That's right. I was kind of joking around saying that – uh I was wondering, but isn't there that one guy that's maybe more popular on Twitter than both of us as a Saints fan? He used to be like an editor, maybe at SI, and now he's like at Uproxx or something like that. What's this? You know who I'm talking about? This guy? I don't know. I didn't know there were actually other Saints fans outside of Louisiana that exist. I thought we were the only two. Does your is your Twitter all day during the games? And I, I'm joking about me being a popular Saints fan, but all of a sudden, it just started this year. There's probably like 30 or 40 Saints fans that are tweeting me like all day Sunday. Like really? I, get, I get more tweets on Sundays from random people from Louisiana um, just like, Brandon Browner sucks. That's the whole tweet. And, th- and then I look like the next commercial break and some other guy will tweet, ah, oh, we should have got rid of You know, like just the most random like emotional in the moment game tweets all day long. I get now. Yeah, I don't get it because I, I think I, I'm the fan that has to 
kind of unplugged from social media <laughs> during the games um, for fear of what I may tweet or <laughs> what 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 I may say in, in the heat of the moment. Um, but that's interesting. That is interesting. Maybe if, maybe if I tweeted more, I'd, I'd get more of that. But that's good. That's good that you're developing a connection as a, a face of Saints fandom in the Houdat Nation. Yeah, and I'm very much a... Even though I'm not in real life, in public life, I'm a very even-keeled fan. I try to keep the highs not too high and the lows not too lows. And I think, especially with the lows, people appreciate my kind of like, eh, you know, 27 new guys, you know, don't worry about these first four games too much. Like, that's kind of my attitude. I think people really appreciated that. But what they don't know is like, when I put my phone down, you know, and Breeze hangs that ball to Cooks. Even though I'm in the back of my mind, I know he's hurt when he throws that in Tampa. You know, I'm I'm like one inch away from ruining another DirecTV remote. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, that's the reality of it. But, like, on the Twitter with these people, I try to be calm by then. So, I don't know. Let's talk more about the Saints in a bit. Because um, I do want to do, do talk about the Saints. But let's not bury the lead. Or let's talk a little bit about awful announcing first. And it's just kind of like timing that we kind of agreed to do this before the demise of Grantland, which bums me out because one, uh, the podcast has several friends at Grantland, like several people who took many minutes out of their lives to be on this show and were always kind about it. And I would always say to them when I'd say, thank you, I would say how great the Grantland people are. And they would always say, well, you know, Bill always said we have a no asshole uh, policy here at Grant Land. And I only ever came across one. I, I won't say who it is, but um, man, they were just such nice people. And I really love the site. I love the work. And uh, it's that, I guess. It's done. So what do you know about the last minutes of Grant Land or the last days? Or what would you like to say about the death of Grant Land? I guess the death of Grant Land, it surprises me on one hand, and yet simultaneously on the other, it's the most predictable thing imaginable. Um, those two shouldn't make sense side by side, but I think they, they do at Grantland because of this. It's predictable because if you look at all of the numbers, if you examine Grantland from you know highly elevated, more neutral viewpoint, its existence at ESPN does not make sense the second Bill Simmons is not working for the company. This is Simmons' site, his brainchild, his writers, his staff, his vision. How could that exist when you when you pull Bill Simmons out of that? I mean, it's like asking Woody Hayes to to run the run and shoot. You know, it just it, it shouldn't make sense without without the brainchild behind it. On top of that, you've got a situation where ESPN is in drastic budget-reducing mode, and here's this high-profile vanity site, a site that is you know, by writers, for writers, and you're not sure if it's making money, if it's barely making money, if it's not profitable, it is profitable. So the expenses of Greenland, where ESPN's at budget-wise, Given Simmons isn't here, it's like trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, trying to fit a post-Simmons Grantland into ESPN's greater vision of where the company is here in November of 2015. From that standpoint, no, it's not surprising at all. 
by the same token, ESPN had a really good thing with Grantland going. It, it, it was great PR for them. It, as our Andrew Buckholtz wrote today, it really brought up a good point. You know, Grantland readers aren't the typical ESPN.com readers. So you're bringing in a new audience. You're reaching new people. And if you're ESPN and John Skipper goes out as president and is backing the site publicly saying, you know, we're committed to this, we're committed to this long-form journalism, committed to what Grantland's doing, don't you think that ESPN could have done just a little bit more to see if they could succeed with Grantland? Do a little bit more advertising, find someone maybe as a permanent editor-in-chief, fill those roles. I, I know that, you know, Simmons went and poached four people from Grantland. I mean, you don't think there'd be 500 applicants for those jobs. To me, it's almost like ESPN saw the reality, saw the logistics and said, you know, the easiest way out here is just to shut things down and wave the white flag. So I don't know if any of that makes sense altogether, but I think that's why on the one hand, you know, yeah, of course you can imagine this happening. But on the other, it's like, wow, did we really get here? Yeah. Yeah, I guess we did. Yeah, and you mentioned the really great piece that uh, Andrew wrote for your site today. And I was, I was going to reference it. Uh, Andrew was on a few months ago with us. He's a great writer and a really nice guy. Um, and uh, that should definitely be checked out at Awful Announcing for some more information on what we're talking about here. But, you know, ESPN is very easy to look at as corporate jerks, you know? And um, they didn't do anything that didn't make them, to the outside world, just look like bigger, heartless, corporate jerks. I mean, they – like when Simmons goes down, you know, they end up kind of looking bad even though they didn't have to look as bad as they did, I don't think, uh, because of the way it happened and – Maybe Simmons just spun it better than they did. I don't know, but they kind of felt like heels at that point. And then they've been saying and screaming that they're committed to Grantland. And, I mean, he's barely started his new job and the thing is dead. And that makes them look bad. Mm-hmm. And just everything about it. And then, you know, right after they've had a horrible week with all these layoffs and the people being laid off, you know, talking about all the waste there is there and how that waste is what. Just people, you know, being very vocal about, you know, people get annoyed when they lose their jobs and now they can go on Twitter and, and, and talk about it if they want. And it just, all of it combined just gives you a real sour taste for ESPN. There's nothing you can do about well, it. And then there was the other on, news but. today that came out that Disney was investing a bunch of money in Vice. So, again, there's, you know, you have this brand here that's being built with Greenland, and now you're going somewhere else. I think the thing, out of everything, the one thing that surprised me most, and this is, to me, what's been most interesting to see as this has developed, is just how how bad it's gotten between Bill Simmons and ESPN, specifically John Skipper, and just how intense the rivalry is at the moment. And when John Skipper makes that decision to take a preemptive strike and go to the New York Times, to say, we're not re-signing Bill Simmons. I mean, talk about the first haymaker thrown in in this 12-round battle. And ever since then, these two sides have been fighting this war back and forth. And I really thought that with 
all of the numbers that worked against Grantland, the one thing that might keep it going, that might you know, motivate Skipper in ESPN to try to make this thing a success, would be to prove that it could succeed without Bill Simmons, that Grantland, anything ESPN touched, was not dependent on Bill Simmons to succeed. Uh, just to prove the point that nobody is bigger than the four letters, which is one of ESPN's favorite adages and something they really hold on to as a network philosophy. And to, to me, that's why I was surprised to see it shut down, shut down so, uh, so immediately without looking at a lot of these alternatives and a lot of ways to move Grantland forward because it basically says to Simmons and to the world that, you know what, yeah, maybe it can't survive without Bill Simmons. But I would imagine with him already getting some writers, we don't know what he's going to do uh, for a writing venture. Vice is an interesting prospect that's out there. or Maybe he goes full independent. But if Bill Simmons can build this, or rebuild, I guess, you know, Grantland 2.0, wherever he goes, the sports and pop culture brand, that's going to be a fascinating thing to see where ESPN likes to build themselves as the worldwide leader in sports, the kingpin, the monopoly, all of that, if Bill Simmons can go and beat them at their own game, that's going to be a big, big chink in ESPN's armor. And I would bet that John Skipper would have to swallow a lot of pride and admit defeat in that one. So I think the personal nature of the Simmons ESPN, if you leave them to the top, if you go Simmons v. Skipper, uh, that's a big underlying current to what we've seen develop over the last several months. Yeah, you know, and it's so interesting too because there's so much. Have you ever see? Did you, would you ever have imagined when you heard? I don't know if it's when you heard about there'd be a thing called microsites, or that when you heard there'd be one called Grantland. That we get to the point where there's so much. I don't know if it's because of the worlds we're in or what, but you know, you got. Hour and 25 long podcasts between Richard Deitch and James Andrew Miller talking about this. Two long pieces on Vanity Fair. Piece after piece on Awful Announcing. Deadspin. All this stuff all about Grantland and Bill Simmons and John Skipper. I could never even imagine knowing that I would know who John Skipper was 10 years ago. Like that, not John Skipper himself, but like the guy that John Skipper is, like the main man like why would i know him you know and now that's like a name here in this feud and it's so kind of bizarre to me when i think about it like that i mean Graham was the number one trending topic on twitter when the site got when the site got shut down on on friday that's so. amazing and, and that's that's really the the complexity here that it's hard to understand because so many people care about Grantland. So many people are invested in it, and yet not enough to keep it afloat. So there, there is that, that, I think, perspective that Grantland is incredibly valued by people on the inside of sports media. Again, that site by writers for writers, uh, with what it did for long form, with what it did in giving a lot of these voices a platform, you know, pulling in guys like Leslie Morris, Rembert Brown, Charlie Pierce, to write for a site affiliated with ESPN, that's a big deal. Um, and you have that resonance with a lot of people, but was it enough? Did it reach that larger audience that is more susceptible to 
Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith shouting for 30 second sound bites yeah. on first take. And, you know, maybe it says a lot about where we are as a culture and where we are as a media, but there was so much invested in Grantland from ESPN, from the writers, from a lot of, of us as observers, because I think for those of us who work in the sports media, who write for a living, who are in this day-to-day, if a site like Brantland can't succeed, that's a troubling sign for our industry. If great writers writing great pieces for what we would consider it, you know, you can editorialize and say what you will about ESPN, what they do right, what they do wrong, but I mean, you know, one of the great success stories in American business history, if you can't combine those things to produce something that is sustainable, that's a worrying sign for the industry. Right, but that's and the weirdest I, thing about I think that's why we saw the outpouring that we did for Grantland, because, say, if ESPN can't support that kind of writing, okay, who can? Right. But the weirdest thing is, is maybe they can, and they just didn't want to because they wanted to kick Bill again. You know, because I think it's weird to me that all of a sudden it's shutting down not too long after the October 1st mark and every single podcast, Simmons taking another shot and another shot and another shot. And now, like you said, four people. Then all of a sudden they're no longer committed to shut down. Like, I, I, well, that, that's, and that's, you know, it's, it's a walking contradiction, everything that we've talked about here. Right. Um, and, and that's the thing with Grantland. Yeah, ESPN could chose to keep it going, profitability or not, because of what it says about the brand and what it says about who they are and trying to lift everything as a whole. Now, if Grantland was making tens of millions of dollars when they shut it down, of course not. It would be impossible to shut it down. But given where it is and the money that it made or it didn't make, it gave ESPN the option. Now, yeah, I think if you want to say, like, ESPN, you could have kept this going a lot of different ways. You chose not to for one reason or another. But uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see, to me, to see the ripple effects across the industry. Um, you know, you look at sports on earth and what's happened there, that, that site is still existing and, and still producing content in spite of, um, you know, some layoffs and, and perceived issues there. Fox Sports, it, it, and something that's kind of gone curiously underreported on notice um, throughout this year. You know, they laid off a bunch of writers at their regional sites. They cut back the FS1 news division. So this isn't just an ESPN thing. This is an industry-wide thing when you're looking at companies, networks that are at all ends of the spectrum, you know, whether you're kind of on the smaller end or you're the, the massive corporations. Cuts are happening across the board, and I think Grantland just resonates so much with those of us inside the industry because we look up to a lot of the writers and we say, yeah, I mean, that's that's who I would want to write with and who I would want to be associated with. And if that site falls by the wayside, you know, what's what's there to protect sports on earth or the classical or SB Nation long form? Or, you, know, you go on down the list. Um, so I think that's that to me is the major takeaway and, and major reason why there was such a response to what happened at Grantland this week from, from those people, I think inside ESPN, of course, but also definitely outside ESPN as well. You mentioned, you know, that that and I have podcasts about it, the articles. I think Grantland is such a big bellwether for that quality sports writing endeavor. 
Um, but to see what happened to it, it's definitely going to raise a lot of eyebrows across the entire spectrum. Yeah, and, you know, I think long-term, this is the last thing, we'll move on from it, but I think long-term, and I'm wondering what you think, I think the legacy of Grantland beyond, beyond like, you know, Bill Simmons and ESPN, beyond that is I think it's going to be that Bill Simmons found some stars and we're going to read them for a long time beyond Grantland. Like, I think there was some really, really talented, youngish, Younger, maybe not people you read for the first time there, but maybe people you read for the first time in a platform as big as ESPN there, and that we're going to read them for a long time, in my opinion. Maybe Katie Baker is and a good think, example of that. I think maybe that's one thing that Bill Simmons should get more credit for than he does right now is the fact that he gave a lot of people their big break and their big opportunity. And I think that's something that's commendable. Again, in an environment where those kind of jobs are hard to come by, um, Simmons came along and, and gave that opportunity to a lot of people. I mean, look at a guy like Brian Phillips, who, yeah, was was a great writer before. I don't think he was too widely known, but wrote such seminal pieces at Grantland that you're going to want to go out and search out his work from now on. I think you can say that about a lot of people associated with that site. Brian Curtis is number one for me. I had no idea who Brian Curtis was before. And I'll be honest, yes, he's been a guest several times on this show. And yes, he's very kind to me. But I think he's as good. And he had a cool job there, too, where he was not necessarily on a beat. And he could write about 50 different things. But I will read anything he writes from now until whenever he writes it. Because I... I think he's so good. I think he's so good. So, I don't know. It's a bummer it's gone, but Awful Announcing is still here. <laughs> well, as long as as long as Awful Announcing is here, we can't entirely give up hope, can we? Right, no, and we can't entirely talk about Grantland, especially since we're on with the main man from Awful Announcing. So, um, obviously, if I was to ask, uh, you know, hey, what's the... State of the Union, and you you kind of mentioned it a few times, you know, look at what happened at Fox Sports 1 or here or there. Well, what's the State of the Union at Awful Announcing? Like, what what's good with Awful Announcing um, in November of 2015? What, what are you excited about? Probably the biggest thing that we've got going on is the launching of the general sports site and hopefully creating a few more jobs. And sensing an opportunity to use the voice that we've developed and grown and established and also announcing over the last uh, five plus years, and uh, of course building on what the great Brian Powell did with the original site, and try to apply that voice to general sports. And uh, we've got a lot of great people involved, a lot of our editorial staff, Dan Levy and Castleberry, Joe Lucia, Andrew Buckholtz, Ben Koo, Ken Fang, a lot of these guys are, are going to be working on this new site. and. Uh, trying to get some of the more established bloggers and writers and also giving people some opportunities. Uh, we put out a Twit Longer ad that basically said, hey, we're, we want people to come write for us and got over 125 uh, emails into the inbox, which is pretty fun to sort through. So you sort through all those writer applications plus the you know the weird random stuff that comes into an email that's <laughs> widely, widely available, uh, plus the network press releases. You know, you have to dig through the emails about Derek Jeter writing about his dog on the Players' Tribune to get to, <laughs> to, the, to the stuff you actually want to read. Um, 
but it's been great. I mean, the the outpouring of interest and appreciation for launching this thing, and not only that, but trying to apply uh, what we've done at AA for sports media to the general sports world uh, has been really great to see. So we're excited to be coming up before the end of the year. I can't unveil too many more details than that uh, at the present time, but uh, it's def- definitely something we're excited about and hope people come along for the ride. And I'll just say I think that uh, Dan Levy was a pioneer in sports podcasting, absolutely made Bleacher Report readable, and is if he's tied to it in some way, it's going to be worth your time. I mean, it's just I think that that's just such a talented guy. Like that's a and he's a guy that's really easy to root for too, in my opinion. Um, and I've been enjoying reading him on uh, on AA while he's been doing doing stuff on there too. Um, what? Yeah. yeah, go ahead. If you go on a spot, you can. It's been great to get Dan aboard, and my hope is that we can bring more people like that into the fold and, and continue to see a lot of these great sports writers, you know, that have established themselves at some other places. But you know, maybe things happen along the way, and you know, we're kind of hoping to be a place where we can provide some of those opportunities to some of those writers, but also a lot of up-and-coming folks, maybe some names that you haven't heard. You know, it's it's kind of my hope that you can look back on what we've done and say, oh, yeah, I remember when, you know, this person wrote for off announcing five, six years ago. And look, and now they're, they're on ESPN, they're on Fox, they're doing these these great things. So um, I think we're, we're casting as wide a net as we can with this thing and uh, hope everyone comes aboard for the ride. Is there something... Um, and probably Grantland is one of those things. Uh, uh, what are some things that when you know you have something on this, you get it up on the page that it's going to get a bunch of hits? What are some, what are topics that people want to read about on awful announcing? We talked about it for a, a long stretch, but I, I'd say probably the number one guaranteed page view magnet for us is Bill Simmons versus ESPN. Right. There's just something about and that. that's never going given... to end, so that's nice. That's job security because that battle is never ending. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually just received word from a tipster. I haven't even started writing about it yet, but you know, fan of Bill Simmons' podcast, fan of the site, that actually emailed in, so you're, you're going to get an exclusive here uh, on something we're hoping to kind of notice first before anyone else, I guess, at, at least as far as blog writers go. Um, but that Bill Simmons has theme music for his new podcast that he's been trying to get, how it is secretly a shot at ESPN. I think it's like a Tupac song or something. Yeah, it is um, a Tupac song. Roll but how me. the lyrics of it you know, are all about his freedom away from ESPN. So <laughs> people just can't get enough of it. I think because of the personalities, because of the intrigue, because of the controversy, um, it's just all there. It's all there in that Bill Simmons ESPN situation. And again, given the rivalry and the relationship right now, Simmons is going to try to do every single thing he can to stick it to ESPN at every single moment that he can. So it's true. We are not going to be shy of content for a long, long, long time to come. And in, in honor of the great David Shoemaker, who writes about who used to write about wrestling for Grantland. Uh, we'll see what he does next. It's really why wrestling works. 
you have you have a really good guy well a perceived the good guy in Bill Simmons in this corner and the bad guy the evil corporation in ESPN in the other corner and they're both cutting promos on each other it's 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 like it's like Monday Night Raw but in sports media it's 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 Austin versus McMahon yeah yeah oh yeah, yeah oh even Seth better, Austin yeah. is actually now working for WCW I guess he's still in business <laughs> somehow still in business um, yeah but yeah that's 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 all it is in a nutshell people are just drawn to uh, to stories like that so I mean that's that's a big one and then you know depending on the news of the day um, I think we see you know breaking story hits uh like we we had a, a pretty popular article a couple of weeks ago on um when that's been when the twitter went down and sb nation the gif account got hit so you know getting on that quickly there, there's usually it's interesting you know sports media seems like such a niche audience like why would you ever write about that or how could you ever make a living writing off of that but it, it is so interesting because there is such a, an interested, engaged audience in this, in what we do, in sports media. And try to frame it this way because I think the audience is there. The audience is still growing. And I think the media industry is now catching on to the fact that, you know what, they're going to get covered the same way they cover the athletes themselves. When you have ESPN, who is a brand that is bigger than Starbucks, you know, right there with McDonald's, with Exxon, with all of the biggest companies in America, why shouldn't they be covered and scrutinized and watched just like the rest? I mean, they are a multi-billion dollar corporation. So to think that you know they shouldn't have scrutiny or who would care about that, I mean, to think of the power and the influence that they have, not just over sports, but over American society and culture, um, it's just, it's massive, it's immense. So as as the the interest and the eye gets turned to that more, I think ESPN and, and we've seen it, you know, in our dealings with the network and you know, this is how people are on Twitter and being engaged with the site, that people are beginning to understand, okay, yeah, there is an audience for this sports media stuff. There are people interested in it and, and yeah, it's, it may be a bit of an interview now, but it's definitely a worthwhile beat to be covering. Is Francesa, and I, I just noticed Dan has an article about it up there, about him today. I'll have to read this when we're done. Uh, is Francesa a big draw? I love Francesa. And more more than even Mike Francesa, I love the Mondo Nation. Yeah, I, can't, I mean, you can't get enough of those guys. Just the, the affinity they have for Mike and that show, for all of his foibles, um, I, I'd say Francesa is a decent sized draw. I mean, maybe not, you know, a Pope sized draw. But maybe like a, a cardinal or a bishop draw. <laughs> That's funny. No, because you know, then uh, that was a. I think we mentioned Katie Baker earlier. She went to, to Francesca Con last year and wrote about it. That was one of my favorite pieces that was ever on Grantland. And um, you know, he's funny too because you could be at six thirty in the morning. I could have Opie and Jimmy, the what's now left of the Open Anthony show, on, and they're talking about Francesca. Because um, they can't get enough of the clips. That their thing is, they love listening to him talk about a snowblower, you know. And then you might be somewhere else, and they're talking about him falling asleep. Um, and he's got no sense of humor, but yet he has a sense of humor. It's just, it's really hard to poke at it. You got to get it right, you know what I mean? And and man, does he have an ego! I I love to have an just for a day to know what it's like to love Mike Francesa as much as he loves Mike Francesa. And I th- <laughs> 
And I think that's well, and, what those the great guys... thing in, in watching Francesca over the last few years is he has kind of become this viral sensation. It's just how he has slowly yet progressively embraced the Mongo Nation, the Francesicon, mm-hmm. you know, all the, the Twitter parodies and everything. Like, you can tell that at, at first he was like, you know, just giving them the dismissive Mike Francesca hand wave, like, you know, who are you? Get out of here. But over time, he, he's almost softened, I think, just a little bit, maybe a tiny bit, and started to embrace this kind of cult fandom that exists around his show. It's It's been awesome to see over the last few years. And when Simmons was on the other day and asked about the Mike and the, the Mad Dog reunion, it was, he had the best response ever. He's like, yeah, I'd do it, but nobody can afford us. <laughs> which is which, which is, is probably the true. quintessential yeah. Mike Francesca response. But yeah, it's such a great response. Hey, psh, can't afford both of us. It's not like that anymore. But if that ever, if the day that oh my god, the day that that that, that could happen, oh man, I I'll tell you about the Mike and the Mad Dog show. I was living in Buffalo. It's too far away to listen to it on the radio. New York City is a good six hours from here. Um, and uh, when it when Yes started. You know, that's when I found out who Mike and the Mad Dog was, and when I found out that I could actually be entertained by watching a talk radio show, um, which who knew that that was possible, but it was because uh, I watched almost every day. I'd have it on. I was in college then, and I'd put it on, whatever. And uh, I finally got an iPhone, and there was an app on there, and I'd be able to listen to it driving around in my car. It was the greatest thing ever. And like five days later was when Doc left. So I had like five days where I could just listen to it like driving around in the car. And then it, it was – I got a text. Whoa, it's over. <laughs> what? No. I've only had it for five days. What do you mean it's over? So. Well, I mean I was the same way. You know, I mean Central Ohio, you don't really have a, a great interest in the Yankees and Mets and Jets and Giants. But what, what would I do in the afternoon? Turn on yeah. Yeah. Because those guys were entertaining. Because they clicked, because they had it, and I think you know, one one of the sad things is those two guys apart are never going to be able to duplicate what they were together. Yeah, they're just um, like. I hope it does it. happen someday. Yeah, maybe maybe the money uh, precludes that from being a possibility. But man, you'd love to see Mike and the Mad Dog get back together for a reunion tour, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. No, they're just like Opie and Anthony in the sense that uh, the sum of the parts is always going to be greater than the parts separately. But that doesn't mean that there's not still a little magic there uh, separately still, too. I mean, I think Opie's really – I'm not sure if you're a fan, but Opie – I'm a huge – I'm just a radio guy, you know. And I think Opie and Anthony's probably the second biggest radio show of all time behind the Howard Stern show, uh, FM radio show. Um, and Stern is Stern, and that's another world. Um, but since the split of Opie and Anthony, Opie's been really lucky because he has Jimmy Norton still. Um, and the show's still good. And Anthony is really lucky because he still has the bitterness of being the guy who got fired. You know, like that's a draw. Like him being the guy that had to go create his own thing. There's something really enticing about that. You know, being the fired guy. But he's a guy who's changing the game, man. Anthony Cumia. Have you seen what he's built since he left Sirius? You know, it's it's reminiscent, and it, that whole situation kind of reminds me of what's happening in sports with Colin Cowherd moving from ESPN to Fox, 
and maybe getting some extra interest there is the guy that kind of got kicked out of ESPN on his way out the door to say, okay, you know, what's, what's he got to say about these things now? Mm-hmm. And I think with the ESPN lineup too, I mean, there are so many changes. And this, this is what I would say about this, the current state of the sports radio industry. ESPN has done more from a progressive sense to get more diversity of voices on their radio platform than I think anywhere in sports media right now. Spain and Prim, Domani Jones, even Marty and McGee on the weekends. I mean, you don't hear two Southern guys on national radio very often. You know, the ESPN gave them that platform. Dan Levitard's now in Calvert's spot. I'm intrigued by where where the entire sports radio industry is going. And you've got a lot of competitors out there, you know, CBS, NBC, Fox, they're all doing their thing. Um, but those are such big spots. And ESPN Radio has seen such massive turnover this year. Uh, really rare. With SVT leaving, Cowherd going, the nighttime lineup changing. It's a big transformational time all over the radio bus. Yeah. It's so hard. Uh, terrestrial radio is so hard because it's, those guys are fighting the updates all the time and the commercials and every time they get going. I mean, we have the luxury. We just talked for already probably too long, but we have that luxury. We didn't have to take these breaks. And I feel bad for those guys because, like I said, every time it feels – it's almost like the best time to listen is the top of the hour. And then after they you, go to – Wait, wait, wait. You don't you don't have to plug like a FanDuel or a DraftKings commercial yeah. into this somewhere? No, I don't. I, I kind of wish I did. they got to probably pay a little bit. <laughs> you got to get on that. I'm sure they would love to sponsor a segment yeah, or two oh, or seven. Sure. They, I'm sure they'd love to give us our own code. And I think everything. I think this is the last bastion of freedom away from the tyranny of DraftKings and FanDuel. Oh, is God. this podcast right here? I'm sure the next one will get that sponsorship. So this needs to go into like the the broadcasting Smithsonian or something as the last element of media that has ever produced not sponsored by Daily Fantasy Sports. I just hope that ESPN hasn't killed 30 for 30 before we get to watch the rise and fall of Daily Fantasy Sports, the 30 for 30. <laughs> Hopefully there's going to be the Mike and the Mad Dog 30 for 30. Yeah, that's so what Mike said. And a Ric Flair one, too, I heard. Which would be amazing. If, yeah. And if ESPN gets into pro wrestling 30 for 30s, I mean... Just imagine the stories that you could tell there. Simmons, uh, that always... is one. That is one thing, and and leaving ESPN, the, the thirty for thirty brand looks like it's going to continue and remain as strong as ever. And I think that's going to be some motivation for Simmons to go on HBO, trying to rebuild that documentary portfolio. Because when Simmons started for thirty for thirty, HBO was king of the sports documentary now. Another Simmons yeah, yeah. and Thirty for Thirty, ESPN surpassed them and by a long shot. So can HBO kind of build back what they once had in that sports documentary field? If it means more great sports documentaries and more great sports stories told, I mean we're all big winners in that. So that's another big thing to watch in 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 the, in the coming months. All right, the sportscasters are here with Matt Yoder from Awful Announcing. AwfulAnnouncing.com, and uh, we'll, we'll lay everything out in a second. But before I let you go, we got to talk about the Saints for a minute. And first thing is, is that last time you were on, we were both under the impression that the greatest Saints team in the history of August was 
at training camp. And boy, were we wrong. Uh, was was that last year? That was last year when we talked. That that was the seven and nine team, the team that that couldn't win the worst division in the history of the NFL. Was, was that that team? That's my my most hated. I've been a fan since nineteen eighty seven. They're my most hated team, and they had Drew Brees on it. And nobody loves. Well, maybe there's a lot of people love Drew Brees as much as me. Everyone knows how much we as a fan base love Drew Brees. So it's hard for a Drew Brees led team to be hated, but. Man, did I hate that team! I think Drew Brees hated it too, um, and I think <laughs> I think that's pretty clear. Yeah, here's the thing with with you know the Saints camp last year and everything else. I mean, I've been there two years now to watch him. Yeah, after both times being there to watch training camp, I have been wanting to drive to Canton myself. It's it's not a long drive, and hard to find Brandon Cooks in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> He's that impressive. I think now I'm starting to realize that a good percentage of that is going up against the Saints' defense in training camp. Right. So I'm I'm happy they turned it around. And here's the thing: you know, you mentioned last year being your most hated Saints team. Oh, I hated. Um, them. I hated them. Ugh. The thing about this year's team is, even when they started one and four, Breeze was so supremely, weirdly confident and optimistic, and he kept focusing on the fact that, you know what, this year we've got the right guys in the locker room. Mm-hmm. And that's that's not what you expect to hear for a 1-4 team, but if there was something, anything, that gave you a fleeting sense of hope that they could turn around, it was that. And we've seen over the last three weeks, I mean, we're seeing a team that is trying to come together, and some of these young players, you know, a guy like Willie Sneed, is coming from relative obscurity to produce. Uh, some of these drastics finally hitting. I mean, it looks like there finally may be some young defensive playmakers on this team with Anthony and Kikaha. Mm-hmm. Um, Delvin Bro, I know he's been victimized a bit on some big touchdowns, but over the course of the season, I think you've got to be pretty happy with his play. I mean, at least he's not trying to set an NFL record in penalties like the other big cornerback oh, acquisition. Yeah. I think Brandon Browner will break that record by week 11. Yeah, I'm he's low. Sure. If I had to rank the 53, Brandon Browner would be pretty low on that list of 53. <laughs> <laughs> nope. This is the biggest question, though. Brandon uh, Browner or Jason David? Oh, God. I think you still got to I still got to go, go Browner. Browner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, David, it was clear the very first game was going to be the worst player on the team all year. I mean, it was clear instantly. But even then, you know, Browner's been a lightning rod for a lot of Saints fans, but we can't get a good grasp of his impact in the locker room. Nope. And right. yep. he was brought in to be one of those guys to right the ship a little bit. So if he's contributing on that side of things, on the team chemistry side, on the professionalism side, you know what? Okay, maybe I'll take a, a couple more defensive holding penalties. <sighs> to me, this season is all about next year and the year after that. And, and that's kind of weird to say because, you know, if you're a fan of any team, you want them to win now. But I don't think anyone is expecting, you know, even the most optimistic, most diehard, most delusional homer of a Saints fan is not going to expect this team to do major damage and make a miracle Super Bowl run. If we play this tape back February, you know, the 10th or whatever, and I'm dead wrong about that, the Saints are lifting the Lombardi Trophy, there will be no more happier man on planet Earth. <laughs> but 
let's be real. The four and four young team, Carolina's already raced out to a couple mile lead in the division. Got Green Bay to deal with. The AFC is just a murderer's row right now with Cincinnati, Denver, New England. The Saints aren't there yet. To me, this year is about is there enough left in the tank for Drew Brees? Is there enough in the relationship with Sean Payne? And is there enough in the retooling and transformation of this locker room and this team and these young guys to say, you know what? Yeah, let's re-sign Brees for another couple of years. Let's give him that extension. Let's keep Peyton around. Let's continue to build what we have here and, and make one more run in the next one or two years with Drew Brees still playing at this high of a level. I think as long as number nine is the quarterback of this team, you are in win-now mode. That championship window is open. So I think, you know, even if this year didn't start out and it's kind of that rebuilding year, you're at least setting yourself up to say, you know what, let's not shut it down just yet because I think three, four weeks ago, you would have had quite a few Saints fans that would have said, you know what, it's the best run we've ever had, but maybe it's it's time to, to say goodbye. I think we were getting there. At one and four, we were beginning to talk ourselves into that. I was Right now, four and four, <laughs> the schedule they've got, I think, you know what, hey, we can still enjoy the blessing of having Drew Brees around, hopefully for a couple more years. All right, let me respond to a couple of those things. Um, this team reminded me a lot of the 2000 team. There, this is what I was selling myself. I was saying Jim Haslett's first year was a huge turnover in the team. And I think that team started 1-3 and three as well before they went on a hellacious run and got the first ever um, – division championship, and first-ever playoff win. And I was thinking that this team would need to be like that team in the sense that there's going to be so many new players in the beginning. The offense was going to have to find a new identity. I didn't even know Breeze was going to get hurt yet and basically ruin two of the games in the beginning, um, even though McCollum wasn't that bad in Carolina, but um, even still, not winning that game with McCollum. Um and so I just kept telling myself, you know, they remind me a lot of that 2000 team in the sense that it's going to build and it's going to build and it's going to get a lot better. If you remember how good that 2001 team was uh, that collapsed at the end because one, Aaron Brooks got hurt and two, because Aaron Brooks was Aaron Brooks and three, because when Aaron Brooks got hurt in the Tampa game, the second time we beat Tampa, Haslett didn't realize it enough and put that home in, but whatever. Um, that's what so I'm we're thinking. we're we're digging up some old old battle wounds. Right, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make what an, happened to those. Right, I'm trying to make an analogy between I mean, I, the two I teams. I still have nightmares of the two point conversion against Minnesota. Oh, the draw, um, the call pepper draw. And the, oh, the years God. just blend together. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's it's like having terrible flashbacks. Um, that, that's an interesting comparison, I think, from the roster turnover standpoint. My only hope is Drew Brees doesn't throw backwards passes like Aaron Brooks did. Right. We're as long as we can avoid that. that yeah, we never have to worry about that. That's the thing. It's Hopefully like, things work out a little better. If we can, if we, we turned over the roster in a similar way that the 1999 to 2000 Saints did, from Mike Dicka's last year to Jim Hass, a huge turnover. And this year, again, 
it's a huge turnover. And it started bad that year. Everyone counted them out. And luckily enough, they were in the right division, the right conference, whatever. They finished 10-6, and six, won a playoff game. And the next year, they were the best team in the NFL for 12 of the games. And then, you know, Aaron Brooks got hurt, really. And they lost the last three and didn't even make the playoffs at all. And Tampa, a team we beat twice, went to the playoffs and won the Super Bowl. But it's kind of like what you said in the sense that this team can build that same way where they're bonding together and they're getting better and the younger players are getting better. And then when you get to the end of that 2000 or 2015 season, making the comparison, you do the extra one or two things to be a better team as opposed to, like you said, being uh, hey, let's rebuild this team. Uh, so I think right. we're really on the same page there. And I think there's some precedent some precedents in Saints history to say that could work. Um, and the other thing is... And look, it's it's my nightmare to see Drew Brees in here. Or no, he has to retire here. His last game has to be here. His last has to be. has to be. He has to walk off. There has to be a day we know 100%. We need to be able to say goodbye to him. Because... No, it's an, it's a unique situation where I don't care who plays on the team in the next hundred years. Now, obviously, we're not going to know who it is or how good they can be, but we could get the second coming of Tom Brady or whoever you think the best quarterback of all time is to be a saint, and he still won't be able to be the greatest saint of all time because it's always going to be Drew Brees because of when he came, how he came, um. And everything he's done since he's been here, always being one of the best quarterbacks on the field, never embarrassing us off the field, a family guy, a guy who there's pictures of. Literally, he signed autographs so long after practice that everyone else had left, and he decided to carry his equipment and walk home with 20 kids. Who wakes up to those pictures? Who, like, who is this guy? This guy exists? This guy's on my team? I've been able to root for this guy? The guy that walks home from practice with little kids and shares Jimmy John with them? Or whatever he owns? Like, doesn't happen anymore. It just blows my mind. It blows my mind, that guy. And I tweeted this, and I was sort of joking, but I'm honestly, I wasn't. I sat down after the game on Sunday. My wife was in Florida. I was the only one here. I was thinking about the game for a second. I finished watching his press conference. I watch it every week. Which, by the way, if you didn't watch a Saints game and I put a Drew Brees press conference in front of you, you probably won't know if they won or lost because they're all the same. But I sat there all by myself. The TV was muted because I was listening to Brees. Brees had walked away. And I thought about what it has meant for that guy to be on my team. And I cried a little as weird as that's like not cried like i found out my dad died cried or not cried like i'm a little kid and i got my butt spanked but like there's just a sense of pride in my team that i never dreamed could exist because he's just especially since you're used to crying for a lot of other reasons right when it comes to being a thing (laughs) right i mean there's still we've had a good run here the last several years and there's still a lot of repressed memories of Ditka and you know, too many Billy Joes at quarterback and you know, Jim Moore rants and Diddly Poo and you know, there's 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 a lot of stuff in that, that memory brink, which is why I think 
it is so special to Reese. And that's why I think fans of other teams may not be able to understand that connection because we've been waiting all of our lives for a guy like this to come. And we as Saints fans realize that, you know what, we may never see it again. So we better enjoy every single second of it while we still can. I mean, that game on Sunday, 52-49, to was one of the most fun games you'll ever see. And just to think, and I've said this before too, I think the last three weeks may be the best football Drew Brees has ever played in the Saints uniform because of his age and where he's at in his career, because of so many new faces around him. I mean, he's turning Ben Watson into the second coming of Jimmy Graham right now. Um, That Atlanta game, some of the throws that he made under pressure, under duress, scrambling, running around for his life, you know, floating balls into space, throwing into tight windows. We are seeing him pull out all of the stops right now, and it is a absolute joy to watch. You you add on top of that the records that he's produced, even in this era where every quarterback is throwing for four thousand yards, seemingly, where the passing numbers are so greatly inflated that he is still standing above the rest. So you get all the records all the joy, the championship, the Super Bowl MVP, and on top of that, what he has meant to the community in coming in after Hurricane Katrina, kind of the symbol of resurrection for the entire city. Can you point to anything else like, like it in sports, in all of professional sports? Can you point to a relationship like that between player and team and city? I don't know if you can. Yeah, and that's why I tell people, I told you, I, I yuck it up with, with Saints fans every Sunday. And um, I even yucked it up with Chris Burke from SI, who wrote a relatively fair piece uh, after one of the losses, basically saying, you know, he thought it should be the end of the breeze baiting connection. I went back. And I, the bottom line of what I said is... Look, I love the phrase, relatively <laughs> Yeah, it was relatively fair. I mean, his points were fair, I guess. I mean, I disagreed with a few, and I told him the ones I disagreed with and made my point as to why. Um, But the bottom line is I'm the last guy off the Drew Brees bandwagon. I mean, I'm going to be the last guy off. I'm staying on it until the very end. Um, And I hope that the very end. His right arm could fall off, and I'd be saying, can we let this guy throw left-handed? Yeah, I want, and and that's why I like what we said. His last game needs to be him in the uniform, us knowing it's the last game, and being able to say goodbye. Um, and we should go, but two more real quick Saints things. One is Colston doesn't get enough credit, too. Um, another guy who has made the call almost every week since 2006 in this era, never embarrasses us off the field, goes about his business in the most professional way possible, Hands the ball to the ref. Makes you proud. He had a great day Sunday. I was happy. And the third thing is, I hope Keenan Lewis can get healthy. So I think he's the most underrated cornerback in the league. And also, he's an unbelievable saint. Um, the fact that he comes from New Orleans, I think being on the team means so much to him. He's been a great mentor to Kenny Vaccaro, who's had a resurgence. Um, and I don't think it's an accident that Kenny Vaccaro has been all over uh, Keenan Lewis's Instagram all summer, and all of a sudden Kenny Vaccaro comes out and looks like the guy we saw two years ago again. If you go, if you just go to find Keenan Lewis's Instagram, go back to the summer and look at the things that guy does in the community. Literally buying an ice cream truck for the entire neighborhood, wherever it is he grew up in New Orleans. 
Um, I should know the name of the neighborhood. I can't think of it. But I wanted to give those two guys a plug to another Saints fan who I'm sure appreciates their greatness. So hopefully Keenan Lewis can get healthy too because you mentioned Bro, and I don't think Bro thought he'd have to play as much on the outside and against top guys as he has. Um, So I give him credit because he's doing his best. But, man, it'd be nice to kind of move him back to nickel and let Keenan Lewis, who was like the only bright spot besides Breeze on the team last year, kind of do his thing again. So I think we're going to be fav- we're favored in seven, six of the next seven games, right? The Saints schedule is so incredibly easy on the way in. Yeah, I mean. That a winning record should be a formality. But then again, it's just it will be enough. We, lived, we just lived through the same thing last season, right? So, yeah. and that's that's the thing with this team—they are so young, they are so unpredictable. I mean, we've seen eight games so far this season, and eight wildly different games from you know getting a big lead and then having to save off the furious comeback versus the Colts, the shootout uh, last week. You know, playing good teams on the road close playing teams you think you'd be close with and getting blown out, just running the gamut. You mentioned a lot of guys that you know deserve uh, plenty of credit for what they mean to the team. There's one other guy, and just you know, given my dual uh, placement here as a Saints fan and someone in charge of awful announcing, Teron Armstead stud. should be the all-pro left tackle this oh, year. Stud. The jump that he has made has been tremendous, and I think you know we knew that he had the tools to make that kind of jump. It's been great to see it this year. But it takes me back to the draft, and it's a moment that is, is seared into my mind just because I thought it was so odd and peculiar at the time when the Saints were on the clock at pick 13 and John Gruden, you know, there's this mandate not to tip picks and not to give spoilers and, right. mm-hmm. you know, it's for all the broadcasters. And right before, right before the Saints selection, John Gruden blurts out how tackle has been a weak spot for the team, specifically Armstead at left tackle. What? And I'm thinking to myself, wait, what? <laughs> what, what did he just say? John Armstead needs replaced as a weak spot? Like, the Saints are going tackle? Like, none of it made sense. And, of course, it was Andrew Speed as a left tackle, and then you're thinking, oh, okay. Um, I don't know if someone... Like has played that tape on loop for Teron Armstead just nonstop throughout the offseason, but it's hysterical to me in that here's a guy who I don't think was ever considered a weak spot for the team, and you know the the debate about Pete as the first round selection is probably worth another podcast in its entirely. Yeah, I'd but to think that coming. he went from that and now is really cementing himself as an All Pro and perennial Pro Bowl left tackle is is just one of those funny quirks to me when you look at at the Saints team and, and what Mr. Gruden said at the draft. Yeah, I thought it was going to be Parker, Peters, or Gregory. And then I said, well, maybe if character's a really big deal, that kind of gets rid of Peters and Gregory. So I guess it'll be Parker. I never dreamed it would be a tackle, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, and that's that's kind of the the regret, really, with this season and kind of the, the sticking point. Like, Andrew Speed could have a great career with this team. Right, but it'd be nice to have a guy making an impact right now. But is there a guy in that draft that could have helped now? I could see this team at 5-3 and three or 6-2. and two. 
instead of four and four and, and attack yeah, that, Peters. that's on the bench and injured. I think there were some guys out there. Yeah, Marcus you know? Peters. So that's that's the thing, you know, you're you're in win now mode, you're you're strapped up against the cap and yet you you take a pick at pick thirteen, it's really more of a pick for the future. A project. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Well, listen, Matt, why don't you lay everything out? Uh, Twitters, uh, website, whatever you got. Lay it all out so everyone knows. Anyone who's potentially still listening after all of this self-gratifying Saints talk. Oh, I'm sure you've got tons and tons of fans in the Who That Nation. Right, we'll, we'll both promote right it now that need Houdat to know Nation. about Awful Announcing, mm-hmm. and hopefully mm-hmm. Awful Announcing fans that need to know about the Saints. I, I hope that your Venn diagram cross-section of people interested in sports media and Saints fans isn't so infinitesimally small that this is <laughs> the lowest-rated podcast in the history of your program. That's my hope. Um, people can find us on Twitter at Awful Announcing. They can find me at myoder84. 84, of course, is for my favorite Saint of all time, Eric Martin. Um, mm, find us on choice. Facebook, uh, Awful Announcing. You search us up there. Bookmark the website, awfulannouncing.com, and follow the new site at a Twitter handle, Facebook, and URL address to be named later. And we'll have Dan on when that – when that I'll, I'll, I'll track him down and uh, make sure he comes on. And I'll tell him – I promise I'll say his name right every time, and, and you guys can make sure you get that out. I'm looking forward to the site. Thanks for spending all the time. And this is a rhetorical question uh, to end on. Is Michael Lewis really a Saints Hall of Famer? I don't know. Let's think the about beer that. Man. One. Let's think about that one, and we can talk about that next time. Because he got inducted this week, and uh, I don't know. Is it really is the bar really that low? I don't know. Uh, but we'll save that for next time. And uh, thanks for everything, Matt. We'll talk to you soon. Enjoy it. A blast as always. Keep up the great work. All right, I want to thank our guests for being on the podcast today, Matt Yoder from Awful Announcing and Tim Graham from the Buffalo News. Do not cross him on Twitter. (laughs) He loves the snark. Crossing Tim Graham on Twitter is like trying to outwit a comedian in a comedy club. Yeah, yeah. Just don't do it. You're going to lose. You could find this week's podcast and last week's podcast and even the one before that, on our website, www.sports-casters.com. You can also find us on Stitcher. Wow, Bill Simmons just talking about how much he loves Stitcher. Oh, yeah? And he's like, they're not paying me or anything. I just love the app. Stitcher's great. So, yeah, we echo that. Stitcher is great. Listen there. Yeah. And actually uh, use have some metrics that we can actually use. Um, so if you want to listen there, by all means, listen there. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes and wherever podcasts are found. You can email us to sportscasters at gmail.com, and many of you do. Thank you for all the emails. I respond to all of them. Uh, and you can tweet us, and people who aren't Saints fans can tweet as well. Uh, my Twitter <laughs> is suddenly turning into the – especially on Sundays. Yeah. People – Don, people turn to me in the Saints community for, for comfort. Yeah. Because I, I stay a little – even with the team not in the moment right but in the sure sure i mean you can vouch for my 
I never buried this team this year. No. I never said I thought they were done or to get rid of Breeze or any of the fire Peyton or any of this crazy stuff some people said. You didn't hear that here. Breeze to the Jets is what the yeah. <laughs> ESPN wanted. Yeah. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters, as I said. That's going to be one and, of those like that someday he's going to have to go. But there's n- like, is there an offer someone could make to the Saints that you'd be comfortable saying, hey, it's... No, uh, and Matt and I just talked about this. He never has to go. He, it's the opposite. <laughs> Someday when he, says he needs go. to walk away. Like John Elway and Dan Marino. Yeah, he's never going to... Those guys didn't play elsewhere. Why does Drew Brees need to? No, I don't, I, I don't picture him playing elsewhere, but if they were willing... To, like, someday there will be a day when strategically it's the right thing to get a mint for him, but I no. don't think they ever will. I don't think they should either. You can follow Don, uh, who hopefully has less ridiculous takes than that on his <laughs> Twitter at Don like sports. All right, bud. All right. Uh, one last thing for me this week. I'm going local again with the Sabres. Everyone's pretty excited with the team. I think they're like four and seven, five and seven, five and seven, five and seven. So not a great record or anything like that, but just coming into this year, there's optimism, there's Eichel, there's Kane, there's all, all these reasons to be excited. Um, the interesting one to me that seems to be an overwhelming sentiment is they might have one of the least popular captains I've ever remember. Gianta on the team. I don't, I don't necessarily I don't think really it's, want him there. I don't think it's necessarily anything he did. I just think it's that he's kind of old, and he's n- not as flashy or probably good as the young guys. Like when they put him out in the three-on-three overtime, I'm like, oh my god, why? Like, why would you put him out there? Now I know. If I want to badmouth Eichel a little bit this year, the first three-on-three overtime, he looked lost a little bit in part. He also got caught a couple times having sure. to be the one, the last man back. Yes. Uh, Which is not ideal. But I would don't want Gianta in that spot. I mean, Gianta doesn't have just the physical raw tools. That, I mean, he... If we lose a three-on-three overtime because Eichel made a mistake, I'm okay with I'm it. cool with that. Eichel learned something. Right, and Eichel has a chance to – Go through all three guys and score a goal. You know, it was the piss me off Gianta moment. Was I think it was the Penguins game where we were down one, called a timeout with 33 seconds left on the clock. We have a power play, and Gianta's on the ice and Eichel isn't. Yeah, I just think there's so much talent Why? there in the top six. Because you feel like you have to have the captain out there. I don't even know that he's a top six forward. I just, I think he probably should be playing. On the th- in Europe and the third line, oh. of, like he just doesn't have a role on this team. He doesn't fit the the third line. Doesn't like he, our third line is uh, like kind of big grindy guys. It's kind of a fun, hard hitting line that can play some defense. And he doesn't score enough to be on the first two lines. So I just think he's going to go down as really unpopular, and I don't necessarily think it's his fault, which uh, is a bummer for him. And I he must be. The, my thought is always he must be one of those room guys he must, must suck for him guy. too because he grew up in rochester and played a lot of his youth hockey here he was a captain sort of, of a, a homecoming a u.s kid captain of a yeah. canadian team at one point uh montreal so, yeah. right yeah. not just any canadian right team. the french canadian right. team. like so there's reasons to think that this should would have worked and maybe it did in some back room teaching type way but i don't it's not working on the ice, and like if my Facebook is in any indication of like other people's Facebook or Twitter, nobody's enjoying this, and it's not going to end well. Uh, the Gianta Sabers era. 
Well, speaking of not ending well, uh, Grantland.com ended uh, last week. So weird. Uh, Just very abruptly, uh, the plug was pulled on Grantland by ESPN uh, days before they announced that they invested $100 million in Vice Sports. Uh, So, like, it's not like the company was going out of business. Yeah. And uh, ESPN had even been sort of bragging to try to make Bill Simmons look bad, that the metrics from the site had been up. And they hadn't even named, like, a permanent replacement yet for Simmons. What is this? It's not a Simmons. This would be the wrong time to do it if you wanted to just get it. Simmons, Oh, it might be. See, like, the thing is, is one, he poached four people just recently. Oh, okay. You know, from there. It'll just always have his name. And from two. Attached to it, maybe. He's out there again. Yeah. And he's bad-mouthing them, and they maybe just wanted to close the door on that. I don't know. But that's not the point of this. Uh, The point of this is there was a rule at Grantland, and it was there's no assholes allowed here. Mm. And I can vouch that there was no assholes at Grantland. Uh, the people that we dealt with as a podcast from Grantland were some of the nicest, yeah, oh yeah, kindest, uh, most uh, flexible people that we work with in the entire run of the show. Uh, Katie Baker, who was just on when she was nine months pregnant, or the day after she got back from Russia for the Olympics. Right, yeah, yeah. Or... Uh, after Francesa Khan, or any time I asked her. Uh, Jonah Carey uh, would come on, uh, whether it was to promote his book or to preview the baseball season or to preview the playoffs or whenever I asked him. Uh, David Shoemaker uh, made us realize that talking about wrestling on this show every once in a while (laughs) might work. It might be cool once in a while to take a step back and talk about wrestling. If it works for Grantland, why can't it work for the sportscasters? And nobody uh, was nice enough than him. Um, Tass Mellis with the starters. We met him when he was at Grantland. Um, Down Goes Brown. Right. Uh, Grantland connection. McIndoo. Uh Yeah, McIndoo. Sean McIndoo. Um And this guy named Brian Curtis. Uh, who the very first time we had him on, it was the week of the Texas-Oklahoma game. And uh, he's a Texas guy. And uh, he's, a, he's, he's, a, he's just a world-class nice guy. He's up there with the Damon Hacks and Lee Jenkins mm. uh, as just people who, when you deal with them, it's just unbelievable what good people they are. And I reached out to Brian as I did to all the Grantland staffers that have made an impact on this show. And I congratulated him. And I said, you know, I want you to always be a part of this show no matter where you are. And I want to share just a part of the note he wrote back. And it says, huge thanks for the note. I can't tell you how much I appreciated you inviting me to come on the podcast all these years. It was an absolute honor to even be asked. Thanks again, and let's get a beer down the road. 
what? <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. It was an honor for him to be on our podcast. This show? Really? And I don't think he's just saying that. I think he means it. Right. And it reinforces my point about what a great guy he is. And it makes me feel good about what you and I have been able to do and what the perception is of us out there. And I'm going to miss Grantland and I'm going to miss all the people. I'm not afraid.